Hello and welcome to the Saturday Down South Podcast. He is Chris Marler. I am Kyle Guerra. Marler, it is our first official off-season pod. But it doesn't really feel like it because we have a lot of news to get to. We have some some stuff that we're going to wrap up with 2019. We have an interview with Alex Cooper, who finished runner-up in our Bowl Mania group. We just have like a, I feel like we have a ton of stuff to get to, and this doesn't feel like an off-season pod at all. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot there's a lot going on here. Um, I, I I just can't wait to take all my frustrations of it being the off-season out on you today irrationally. That's fair. And, and, you know, I'll, I'll yell a little bit, but there, at least there's stuff going on still. There's stuff going on. There's a lot of stuff going on. And we're actually even going to talk about the Aaron Hernandez doc a little bit just because I think a lot of our listeners watched it, had opinions on it. That was a topic of discussion in the Facebook group as well. So we want to kind of break some of that stuff down at the end as well. Um, but a lot of different things that we're going to get to in this podcast today. And I'm, I'm sorry because I know there are people that listened last Tuesday and they're like, hey... You know, I thought we were going to be doing two podcasts a week for a little bit. We're still currently working through some of that stuff, but with kind of, we figured with the NFL underclassmen draft entry date being, I couldn't have said that in a more awkward way. Um, with that being Monday, we figured, you know what, we'll kind of put, we'll, we'll kind of put some perspective on that stuff because we're recording this on Monday morning when the draft deadline is has since passed. And so right. we are now trying to, to make sense of some of this stuff. So I figured why not just do it on Monday as opposed to Friday when we're still kind of working through some of that stuff. So apologies for only having one pod last week. We're still figuring out what our regular schedule is going to be for the offseason. But we've got a lot of stuff to get to today, and that's all that matters. Yeah. Let's start with the early NFL draft departures because – I did the did the math, and according to my really, really bad math, there were 37 SEC underclassmen who declared, and I think that there were some teams that benefited from this, and I think mm-hmm. that there were some teams that maybe got hit a little bit harder than others. I agree with that. I think this, this is interesting because I think this is starting to be from the – from a few fan bases, you'll get – like the logical response is like, oh no, like that, you know, we're gonna miss that guy. But I think there's there's still that kind of SEC bravado. It's like, well, we'll just we'll reload. That's what we do. The spin like, zone okay. for <laughs> the NFL draft departures are great. I, I'm here yeah. for all of them. I've seen so it's, many it's like great coaching, Miles uh, Brennan. Yeah, yeah. It's just like the coaching carousel thing. You will talk yourself into any sort of coaching candidate. I know that if you had told Arkansas fans at the beginning of their coaching search that they were going to end up with Sam Pittman, they would have said, you're ridiculous, get out of here. Yeah. And then by the end of it, by the time that he was hired and they listened to the press conference, they're like, all right, let's go. I'm ready for Sam Pittman. That's not to say that he can't succeed, but that is what we do. We do a ranking for this, though. We should definitely do like our favorite. Like The people that are saying, like, you know, I think Bam's going to be better without Tua. I'm like okay, <laughs> well you just said it right there, so you're, you're yeah. One of there you people. go. That one I think the other one I saw that was uh, Miles Brennan um, is going to be more accurate than Joe Burrow. That take was um, that's one of those where you kind of when you see somebody say that you click on whatever sort of social media platform they have that they that they said this on, and right. then you kind of go back and you look at all their tweets, and it's just nonstop why Miles Brennan is going to be the next Joe Montana and. Quickly, yeah. you realize, okay, this person is... Sesame Street deserved an Oscar. It, I, I thought it did. Do you watch Screen That's Actors Guild on Sunday night? A lot of snuffs. Uh, no, I watched football, Connor. It was a game. <laughs> well, it was after the game, but that's all right. Yeah. Um, let's start with Bama, because I think Bama... You could make the case that Bama benefited the most from the 
list of guys who could have gone to the NFL but didn't. The guys who, who came back. And for Bama, the names are, are big. They're obvious. They're guys who have been showing up in the first rounds of, of mock drafts and stuff. Najee Harris, Devontae Smith, Dylan Moses, Alex Leatherwood are all coming back for this team. And I'm going to give you some credit here because when we were looking at this about a month ago and I said, you know, there is going to be a mass exodus. We're going to see all these guys sitting out of bowl games and stuff. And Bama, to its credit, Obviously, they lose you know guys like Tua and Jerry Judy, and that's that's inevitable. But Bama, I think, has made out really, really well from this entire process. Yeah, I would agree with that. And and I want to go on record and say that it was Connor's idea to start with Bama. This is um, true. But I, I will say, I think Bama fans, and, and I'm included in this, they got their hopes up because when all the rumors started circulating, it was like, you know, the Bama fans are going to be really happy. You have the Greg McElroy quote before the bowl game. You know, like, I, I, Bama fans are going to be ecstatic with some of these people returning. I think everyone just kind of wanted that or assumed that was going to be Tua. And it wasn't, which is the best move for him. But, yeah, the guys they have back, you have three guys here, maybe, yeah, three at least that were at some point, and a lot of them still late in these, like, mock, the latest mock drafts, were uh, projected to go in the first round. And and one thing, like, I, there's no part of me that thinks Devonta Smith is a better receiver than Jerry Judy. But from a production standpoint... That's a big get to have him come back. And same with Najee and, and, and being able to get back to like a two running back system where you have like, you saw Bama kind of struggle with the run early on this year because there wasn't a good complimentary back. Like Brian Robinson was just not, he wasn't it. Um, so yeah, I think I think that was good. You actually had it in the notes here, but we really agree. I, I totally agree. I think it is a smaller scale because the numbers, I think who impact or who benefits the most was Mississippi State. Mississippi State gets the late news that Kylan Hill is coming back and Errol Thompson as well. And Errol Thompson is somebody who I talked about pretty highly and I gave him some preseason All-SEC love going into the 2019 season. A little bit disappointing on that end for him. But Kylan Hill was somebody who very, very early on in this process announced that he was going to the NFL. So we assumed he was going to the NFL. But then you see some of his tweets and you realize, oh, maybe he actually is going to make a different decision. And they hire Mike Leach. And I actually sort of dismissed it right after because everybody yeah. knows that Mike Leach's running backs are runs the ball. They they are not they're not going to get two hundred fifty carries in a season. Kylan Hill is coming back knowing that that is not going to happen. His workload from a carry perspective is not going to it's there's no way it's going to increase. So I assume he's gonna to go to the NFL. He announced on Wednesday night that he's coming back. And all of a sudden, you're looking at Mississippi State going, okay, well, this is a team that's got its leading receiver back. It's got its leading passer coming back and Garrett Schrader. It's got, you know, Kylan Hill coming back as well. They've got some nice pieces on the offensive line. I'm not, this isn't my way of talking myself into Mississippi State, but here we go. Mike, Mike Leach's situation is, I think, significantly different than what we thought it was going to be a couple weeks ago. Yeah, and I don't, he's not one of those guys that's ever had to rely on, like, great recruiting classes like he, he's been able to coach up players and programs his whole career I, the kylan hill thing is it is easily the most surprising it, like if Tua stayed this still would have been more surprising to me than than Tua. i agree because and and i don't i don't i know that this wasn't really i don't know if it was a factor and i, I think the etn like decision came after he had already announced he was staying. yeah etn's decision came on friday kylan hill's decision right. came on wednesday yeah but when you have like just two guys like right off the top of the head naji etn Guys that I think would have been ahead of him in the draft class and yeah. will probably still be next year. Colin Hill is a great back. I love Colin Hill. Personally, I think this is probably a mistake. Not even from a standpoint of the fit in his offense. Like for all I know, 
I mean, he's going to stay and play quarterback because Garrett Schrader wasn't that great. And maybe just, you know, he's like susceptible to a right hook. Kylan Hill maybe is, a, is like the Lynn Bowden a star next year. But regardless, like, I don't know how much more he's going to improve his draft stock right. in that offense. It's just a matter of he's going to try, you know, just like the Washington State back, who the way that he was used this year was essentially used as more of the Darren Sproles type. And if you're able right. to show that you can you can catch passes out of the backfield, then obviously in this day and age in the NFL in 2020 in this passing era, you make yourself a little bit more marketable. So understandable. And then Errol Thompson, somebody who covers really, really well from the linebacker position. I think yeah. getting him back on that defense, huge, huge victory for this Mississippi This is 11th State. year. Yeah, the, he, it feels like he's been there for, for a while now. This will be his third year as a starter. Yeah, third yeah. year as a starter, I think. Um, and then Trey Smith coming back for, for Tennessee. Tennessee didn't lose any underclassmen early to the NFL draft. Believe it or not, Jared Garantano did not go to the NFL draft. Um, you know there's some NFL GMs that were pissed about know, that, right? man. Yeah. Um, no, I think that's that's like individually one of the biggest gets, if not the biggest get yeah. in the SEC. Because that kid's so great, man. Trey Smith is this. If you're, like, I feel like he's... He's not like on a Tebow level, obviously, but it's one of those guys that like transcends like your fandom. Like everyone's pulling for a guy like Trey Smith. Played really well this past year as well, and showed that you know he can move past the uh, the blood clots issue, and he's hopefully going to be able to stay healthy and on the field. But it's kind of surprising because thought he would be, you know, he's the most similar. And I realize they play different positions and all that stuff, but he was a little bit similar in the Tua aspect, where you're thinking this is a rare injury. He's a junior. He's a junior who could easily go to the NFL and start that clock. Right. And would have interest, but for him to come back to school and want to be part of something at Tennessee, where you know that all of a sudden the talent on that offensive line—we're going to talk about it a lot—it is in a much different place than it was. I think even with with Butch Jones, I think that's fair to say. Agreed. I think that kid too is a guy that, from the same standpoint, you to ramp to a. He would have excelled in interviews and stuff like that. Absolutely, absolutely. So, Cade Mays is going to play this year. I'm just throwing that out there right now. Like he, he's going doubt. to play. There's, there's no doubt. He's going to get that waiver. He's going to play. I the, pinky promise you. <laughs> Thomas Mars pinky promises a lot of people things. Um, the SEC teams who were hit the hardest. We're not saying this to pick on teams, and that's not to say that these teams don't have a ton of talent coming back because they absolutely do. But if you're looking at the two teams that were hit the hardest from early NFL draft departures, it was Georgia and LSU. It's pretty simple. Georgia loses Jake Fromm, DeAndre Swift, Isaiah Wilson, Andrew Thomas, Salman Kinley. The good news, though, for Georgia, Malik Herring, Richard LeCount, Eric Stokes, and Monty Rice are all back. All of those guys, obviously, on the defensive side of the ball. And uh, as opposed to, you know, the the guys on, on the offensive side of the ball that Georgia lost... But Georgia definitely hit hard, and the offensive depth. You know, we're going to talk a little bit about the the coaching, the coaching changes, and what, what we saw with you know bringing in Todd Monken and all this stuff. But or Todd Monken, but you know the, some of the moves there from an offensive perspective. Yeah, that that's that's getting gutted from an offensive standpoint. There's no I way. Di- around I disagree. It. I disagree. Okay. I so I, and I know I know when you look at it, and I brought up last week, like losing nine of eleven starters on offense is a big deal. And, you know, if you're a Georgia fan, I know that you can get into the semantics of it. Like, well, you know, they just shuffled the offensive line so many times. The running back, they, you know, Swift obviously was the, the starter. You could argue maybe they're only losing eight. Um, I don't think I ever would have said this from, like, you know, at the start of the season or, or like, even a week ago, that the Jake Fromm thing might be a wash. Like, they might be in a similar situation. Because the good, the good news here is, all of the key guys, like Georgia didn't have any any players, in my opinion, for lack of better words, they didn't have anybody make stupid decisions and leave early. You know what I mean? Like there wasn't like a fringe guy that like would have left like a Deontay Thompson last year for Bama that ends up going like third to fifth round. 
They are going to return 9 of 11 on defense, and they're going to, like, that was the strength of this team. They have all those young guys on offense already. They still have a lot of talent on the offensive line. I made the mistake of saying that that, that might have been a weak point. I, I should have done research on it earlier. They still have, like, four or five five-stars on the offensive line alone. Those, those like, freshman receivers that are all still all five-stars, um, they're going to be really good. I, I just think that Georgia's the offense was so underwhelming this year. It, like, they set the bar so low for themselves that – that's true. The strength of that team is is on the defense, and that's where everyone came back anyway. I think the team that, hands down, I've, I haven't seen a mass exodus like this, and I don't even know how long was LSU. They, they got hit the hardest by far. It was a little bit reminiscent of, I think, 2015 Ohio State. Ohio State lost so many underclassmen yeah. that year, and this was similar, where it was just one after another after another. And, you know, they lose Grant Delpit, Caleb on Chasen, Clyde Edwards Alaire, uh, Sadiq Charles, Justin Jefferson, Jacob Phillips, Lloyd Cushenberry, Thad Moss, Patrick Queen. The good news Jacoby Stevens, Kerry Vincent, Tyler Shelvin, those guys back on that defense. I think. LSU's defense is going to be good, even without Dave Aranda, who, as we found out, is accepting the Baylor job. But, yeah, from just from a key personnel standpoint, the underclassmen element of that is significant. You add on the fact that, oh, by the way, Joe Burrow, gone. Christian Fulton, gone. Significant things. I think that's that's we can say this about LSU without necessarily saying, you know, oh, they're not going to be able to reload. Or, you know, you you look at some of the names on that list and you think about the roles that they played in, in the playoff games alone, and you're like, yeah, like that's it's going to be a very, very different looking team, regardless yeah. of the fact that they obviously still return a lot of talent next year. And, and so here's like one thing that I was kind of surprised about with some of the the mixed bag of like reactions from fans because you're losing 14 starters. That is a lot of starters. 14 of 22 starters. You're losing the Heisman Trophy winner. You're losing your, the, somehow the Jim Thorpe Award winner at at DB with Grant Delpit. But he also, one of the best defensive backs you've had there in in a long line of great defensive backs. And was super valuable in the championship game as well. Yeah. Yeah. Your best, your best defensive player comes back. You know what I mean? Like, like Derek Stingley comes back. However, this is so much talent that's going to be gone. You lose Clyde Edwards Alaire. Like, that's a 1,300 yard running back. I mean, this they, 14 starters, and then on top of that, when you lose, I know Joe Brady wasn't the offensive coordinator. You lose your defensive coordinator. That That is a big deal. And you lose, let's say you lost one and a half of the two coordinators you have. You lost your, you're also Broyles award winner. I mean, we, can, yeah, we don't have to, it doesn't have to be and, a coordinator loss for it to be significant, obviously. Right, and I, I have zero doubt that Coach O is going to recruit well, that this program is going to stay up. They're, they're not going to fall back down to like, you know, some of like the under underperforming teams like that Les Miles had. But when you talk about replacing 14 starters and basically two coordinators and still having to play in the SEC West, I don't see how they, like, they won 15 games on a national championship. Like, there's nowhere to go but down. You know what I mean? But, I think it's it's fair to say that's that, that's going to be a very difficult job next year, man. You have Texas coming in that's going to be pretty good. You still play in the SEC West. I don't know. What do you think a fair expectation for LSU is? You know what's crazy, though? Before, before I give you a, a number, and I want to hit on this real quick, LSU might have the most unanimous preseason American on the offensive side of the ball and the defensive side of the ball. Jamar That's Chase true. and Derek Stingley, which is pretty incredible. And so if you think about that, and you know, it doesn't necessarily guarantee that those guys are going to be the leaders and they're going to pick up where everything left off or whatever. I, I get all of that. But 
I think a realistic expectation for LSU is still to be with the way that they've recruited, with how well that they're coached, because Steve Ensminger isn't taking that offense away. They're still going to have that offense in play, the offense that Joe Brady brought over, and it's going to be Steve Ensminger's job and company to be able to execute it. Whether right. or not they'll be able to do that is a different question. But right. I still think the expectation for LSU should be to com- be competing for an SEC championship into November. Absolutely. Absolutely to have yeah. a chance to, to win it, and not necessarily – just the Bama game because I think that's that's been like the kind of checkpoint for LSU yeah. in years past of like are we for real or are we for not oh I guess we're not for real and this year it was the yes now we are clearly the favorite to win the SEC championship but man I, I think that I think that there is more parity atop the SEC in terms of the group of contenders mm-hmm. going into this season than there has been in years past with that group who I had them ranked in my way too early top 25 from three to six with Bama, LSU, Florida, and Georgia, where now both divisions, it feels like right now, just looking at it right now, that separation isn't necessarily there in the way that it kind of usually is in the SEC. And I'm interested to see what kind of factors can change that because that's maybe the thing that's kind of helping LSU this offseason is that if two had been coming back for Alabama or something like that, or maybe even if Jake Fromm were coming back for Georgia, and I'm not saying that Jake Fromm is on the same level as Tua, but we'd be talking about those two teams probably in a little bit of a you know a little bit of a different manner of like maybe they should be number one in the country to start the year, and LSU doesn't necessarily have to deal with that and deal with somebody getting being the overwhelming favorite to win the SEC. Do you kind of see what I I'm see, saying? I, I see what you're saying, yeah, but just because. They're not a favorite. Like I know you had the article about like like the media would pick. Like I don't disagree with you. I think there's there's parity, and this isn't a shot at LSU because they still have a on paper a lot of talent. They have they have a lot of talent there in place. And they have a great recruiting class. My point is this: I, this season was incredible. It's it's something that we will probably never see again in college football, or at least like we've never seen it before in 150 years of college football. Yeah. We've never seen an offense like that. We've never seen a quarterback have that season. This is, we talk about like once in a generational type talent. Not only is it the, it's literally the best season a college quarterback has ever had in college football history. The nine seasons before that we talked about last week, they, they were again in, in t- like touchdown passes in the SEC ranked 13th or 14th in the league. It's a lot to just assume that because of how successful this year was, when you're already losing so many parts that made that so successful, that they're just going to, you know, keep rolling next year. And like, I think Miles Brennan being like the backup for two years and kind of like n- knowing the system, I trust Miles Brennan to be a-, a good quarterback next year. It's just, it's going to be a really different, really different just because of everyone they lost. I think if you're an LSU fan, what you're kind of hoping for, a little bit of the 2017 Clemson thing where they lose to Sean Watson from that team, and they all of a sudden have a different identity. And maybe in the preseason, we sort of, I don't want to say that we wrote off Clemson. Clemson was still probably, I'd have to go back and look, a top two or a top three team. They were the number one team going into the playoff. They were the number one team going into the playoff, obviously, after we saw what they were able to do in the regular season. And they still had the one loss. They had lost the game to Syracuse as well. With Kelly Bryant starting at quarterback, though, that, that was a team that I think kind of established this new floor for Clemson. And that's what LSU is trying to do this year. They're mm-hmm. trying to say, this is our new floor. We're not just, this wasn't just a one year wonder. We're not just going to go back to being right. a team that gets, you know, we're second fiddle to Alabama all the time, or maybe we're even third in this, in this division. That is what I think LSU is trying to establish this year because the question isn't, oh, is LSU going to win the national championship next year? It's what is this floor going to look like and how well are they able to, to rebuild and reload with all of these different personnel moves? That's I think kind of that's an incredible 
incredibly good point because like there are still people that for whatever reason will bring up coach O not being legit as a coach and 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 well he lost to Troy three years ago like what <laughs> like, 31 and five since then he's dude, 31, he's 31 and five since then. Troy he's won not I think he's like nine and two in top 10 they games beat only 12 to... teams that were ranked in the top 10 at the time that they played him since right then. Right. So he's, I have no doubt that like that, that floor is no longer, that's not happening anymore. You know what I mean? I don't think we'll we'll see that for a long time at LSU's program. I think they are going to continue to be a a contender. I just think in this year, again, this is, this was such a, it's not lightning in a bottle, but the pieces that made this thing go and it went better than anything we've ever seen before. You can't just say like, man, this was like I just watched this movie and it, like I watched Godfather two, fantastic. We're gonna just you know cut out half the actors and make Godfather three. How that how that end up? Like it's Michael Scott's favorite movie, but either way, I let's let's talk about the the Joe Brady and uh, Dave Aranda departures because that was a, a big storyline last week. Obviously, we find out that Joe Brady is leaving LSU to go take the offensive coordinator job with Matt Rule and the Carolina Panthers. And then a couple days later, we find out that Dave Aranda, somebody who has held off being a head coach, and they had to deal with the UNLV talk early in, in the bowl season. And then we find out that Dave Aranda is, ironically enough, replacing Matt Rule at Baylor. And I think that on top of LSU losing a lot of underclassmen, it was a little bit of a reminder of, look, this is what you deal with when you are an elite program. Yeah. Alabama's, Ohio State's of the world, they deal with this on an almost annual basis. And Good maybe not, 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 not necessarily nine underclassmen leaving for the NFL. That's not necessarily a regular thing. But when you win a national championship like this, this is kind of par for the course. Now, I think a lot of people are wondering, well, where does this leave LSU now that they're, these two revered assistants are gone? I think this season has the potential to serve as a great reminder that Coach O knows what he's doing. He absolutely knows what he's doing. And we're going to kind of wait and see um, the moves that he makes to fill these openings. But the thing that was lingering over him these past couple years as LSU has, you know, sort of raised its floor with winning consecutive New Year's Six Bowls, all that stuff, was this the fact that Dave Aranda was making as much money as any assistant not named Brent Venables in college football. I think he was still making more. I think they upped his salary to making more. He was making yeah. two and a half million bucks this past season. And when you're on the same side of the ball as Coach O, it's this belief of, oh, well, Dave Aranda's the one that's doing the work and Coach O is just the figurehead. And because Coach O is only making four and a half million bucks compared to Dave Aranda's two and a half million, it's an easy thing for an average fan to say, oh, well, you know, Coach O's obviously not that good, you know, from an X's and O's so perspective, dumb. he doesn't know what he's doing. That's gone now. And I'm kind of glad because. I think Coach O knows a lot more about defense, the defensive side of the ball, than we probably give But what about when he was at Ole Miss, Connor? No, you're, 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 again, spot on. You're spot on with this because that whole thing was only able to work because of his foresight before. And remember, he he wanted to get Kiffin. He had a plan. Like, he he's like, he's a caricature of a person, and people, you know, don't take him seriously because of his personality and how he sounds. He knows what he's doing, and, and I, like he just won a national championship. You know what I mean? And I think the best part about this is the coaching turnover is I don't see it as being a consistent thing. Necessarily, they're going to have to fight. You know, like this was again, you're like not lightning in a bottle, but if there's no better time to maximize your value as a coach or player than this season at LSU, if you have a yep. chance. So you know what I mean? Like Thad Moss, Joe Brady, those guys, they make sense to come out early. 
Coach O is not going to have the same issues that Bama has, at, you know, where they have like coaching turnover because people want to be around Coach O. People want to be in this program, and it's so much fun. And it's it's a different it's a different mentality. It's a different lifestyle, and it's it's a different brand. And I think people are, are probably going to flock to the job, and I think they'll make a good decision on, on who to get. I don't think David Aranda would have been there as long as he was if if he didn't legitimately like working with Coach O. Having right. having a head coach who stayed out of his business and you know worked with him in the right way and wasn't trying to micromanage every single thing that he was doing. And that's not to say that that Saban or somebody like that does that, but I, the more and more you hear about Coach O from players, from coaches about even just listen to Matt Leinart talk about him. Matt Leinart was there when Coach O was at USC back in the day and how much people like this guy. And I think that matters as you're going through this new phase in your program. And I think Dabo has benefited from that to a certain mm-hmm. extent. Coaches have talked about, you know, a guy like Brent Venables has wanted to stay with somebody like Dabo because of the freedom and how he empowers him in different ways. And I think now for LSU, it's it, it has elevated the the job and and knowing that they pay their assistants super super well. And you have a coach that even after last year wasn't necessarily looking to make that six million dollar payday. I thought Coach O was going to get way more money last year, and all yeah. of a sudden he's only making like four and a half million bucks. And I say only because, man, he wasn't even in the top twenty five of the top highest paid coaches last year. It's crazy. I mean, and you, you talk about like the I, I just brought up the fact of like maximizing your value or like on your like your opportunities to like maximize like your value as as a, a coach or a player in this game. He had a chance to do that last year. We've seen it like 99% of, of other coaches in the country would have taken a massive raise. And his idea was like, no, I eat, we all eat. Like we're gonna break we're gonna one of the first things he did when he made like made the contracts for these assistant coaches was incentivize all, all of their bonuses. Yep. Yeah, I mean he he's so smart. he's a players coach. He's like a coaches coach. Is that a good way? I to think play? he's a coaches coach. And, That's fair. You know, it's weird to think about, and and I don't know if we'll ever see this, but people liked Bama and Saban more when he was first at Bama, like a little bit more than now. Like it was the bar wasn't super high, but like Dabo, Dabo had this like oh just all shucks like golly gee, he was just like this lovable underdog that people really liked until he kept winning. If Ed Orgeron keeps this thing going, do you think that people would get tired of Ed Orgeron? Because I can't it see depends. it happening. It depends. And as college football fans, we we naturally do this. It's very, very hard to stay likable. Dabo learned that firsthand this past year. And Dabo, I think once he saw that feedback, I think it kind of only made it worse. And I think he he made himself less likable as the season grew on with with complaining about, you know, the lack of respect for Clemson and all these things. It'll be interesting to see if he goes down if Cocho goes down that road. I'm not sure that he will. I thought one of the one of the funny things that came out of this that you realize is these two jobs, LSU losing both of these coaches, were still the result of the fake dog pee celebration in the Egg Bowl. Oh, so when you first wrote that, I was like, that's a stretch. And then I started like doing like the yep. – it was like Charlie from Always Sunny Philadelphia, like trying to match the – like connect the dots. And I was like, oh, my God. Like Everything. this is – this is going to be one of those things like what was the what was the 30 for 30 on the draft like the Elway to Marino thing yep. it was like yep. all these crazy things fell in place and it's like this one the dog pee heard around the world I can't believe how much of an impact it's had on and arguably it seems to have benefited a lot of people you know I what think I mean it like has. I, we're going to have to do some sort of, you know how we did the, the two-year anniversary celebration of, of Jim McElwain and the and the shark photo? We're yeah. going to have to do some way to commemorate this and look back on it because the wrinkle, the you know, the ripple effect that, that has happened 
from all from from that alone is just fascinating because of the way that Joe Judge was pursued by the Giants and the fact that Matt Rule was supposed to go up to New York and you know he was only going to go Mississippi State wanted to offer Joe Judge and then the Giants were like no we're going to come in and we're going to we're not going to let him you know even have that that additional conversation with you like all these different things that happened from it so just kind of a a weird thing that is is one of the byproducts of this there are LSU fans who are wondering, and I think I've said this on the podcast before, so I apologize if I'm repeating myself here. There are LSU fans who are wondering, what is this offense going to look like? Are we all of a sudden going to go back to the offensive old? My answer no. is simple. No. No. There, there, there's just not. If you're looking for uh, some some sort of comp, think to yourself what, and I, I know, not everything is about Alabama, but my first thought when I heard about this was, this is like Lane Kiffin at Alabama, where he comes in at twenty in twenty fourteen and changes the way that Nick Saban viewed offense and the way that he viewed ball control and stretching the field and all these different things. And when Kiffin left there, it was the responsibility of whoever the offensive coordinator at Alabama was to run a variation of Kiffin's offense with Kiffin's concepts. And I know Brian Dable didn't necessarily run exactly yeah. Kiffin's offense, but the 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 you know was it the offensive identity was still going to be based on what Kiffin did and Sarkeesian a lot of the similarities from what Kiffin was able to bring into Alabama are still there and I think LSU moving forward is saying look whoever's going to be our our primary play caller moving forward even if that's not Ensminger in a few years is going to have to run this Joe Brady style offense yeah so I disagree with the comparison and again Connor made that comparison to Bama um, Connor but and I only say because. Yeah, you're right. Like Kiffin, he he brought in these different things that we were trying to do, but it was a stark contrast in in how they ran the offense the following year. Like it was, it's Dabble was hands down the worst offensive corner they've ever had under under Saban. But like, it's it is. I, I think it was a, a different change in philosophy because, and I, I think honestly Saban kind of like was combative about it. Like he didn't want to throw as much. He didn't want to like he wanted to run the ball more and be more physical. This this offense. Here's the good news. Like the LSU stuff. I, I have zero doubt in my mind that, that Orgeron's going to make the right hire. This is a guy that, again, kept Aranda, uh, went out and got Insminger, and Insminger had already been the OC before, and it wasn't, like, wildly successful. Like, he, he, this was having faith in this guy and then going out to get a guy like Joe Brady. Again, Coach O is the one that found Joe Burrow. This is like, true. So, so you, should, you should have all of your faith and, and put all your eggs in that basket, in my opinion. My point is, from an execution standpoint— and, and Insminger, again, he was the one calling plays on first and second down. Again, that's 82% of their total passing yards this season came on first and second down, yep. or 85. So there's a lot to be said for that. From an execution standpoint, though, it's hard to say you're going to be able to to repeat that that level Agreed. of efficiency. Um, I, I do think I, I think they're going to be good. I think the, the situation with Georgia. Yeah, let's talk about that. That was the big news last week. So we heard about this Friday as well, and... Todd Todd Munkin is former LSU passing game coordinator. So obviously they just wanted to take the Joe Brady. No, I'm kidding. Um, He was the Browns offensive coordinator. And with this move that we have been waiting for from Kirby Smart, I mean, we have been waiting and waiting. We're like, why is James Coley still the offensive coordinator in Georgia? And you said... You said it wasn't going to happen. Yes, I I was dead wrong about this because I thought, you know what? enough time has passed I thought they would have made this move because the Brown season ended weeks ago people don't but forget. it was it was interesting the the timing of this because he goes out Kirby goes out and he finds his grad transfer quarterback he finds Jamie Newman 
and brings him on. And then he gets his new offensive coordinator. And he goes out and he hires somebody who runs what's what's considered an air raid offense and runs a very, very different offense than what we're used to seeing at Georgia. And my thing hearing about this initially was, wait a minute, because they didn't say what position he got at first, and then it was announced later. My thing at first was, look, yeah, that's that's all well and good. They got a guy, Todd Munkin, who's going to come in, and, and he's got some different offensive beliefs, but I need to hear that Kirby actually believes that they need to change their offensive philosophy. But by naming him offensive coordinator, that's what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. I, I think we've, we've watched Kirby run the ball first. Like, that, that offense... Is totally predicated off the run. It, it, like you look at it just like the 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 ratio from from uh, running plays to the passing plays. Like last year they ran the ball 56 percent of their plays, sixty one percent the year before, sixty nine percent in twenty seventeen, um, and then fifty eight percent. So obviously they're a run first team. The the play calling going when you go through and look at like what what it was on first down and second down, it was so over the top like kind of predictable from James Coley and there wasn't that many variations and and I again I'm not going to make any excuses for James Coley because of well the receivers couldn't get open you recruited five-star receivers if you can't coach them up to get open like I don't know what to tell you because because we see it we talk about how great Pickens is going to be moving forward there's just too much talent for them not to have been better on offense I think I don't want to get I don't want to get the hype train rolling too hard here. Oh, get it, get it rolling. Off season, it. and that's what that's what they do best. Are, are you going back to your Georgia winning a national championship prediction? I feel way, way, way more confident in that now than I did like a week ago because what he's done, like you said, he's he is. I don't know if he's changing the philosophy how this team is going to play football. They are going to throw the ball first, and and they have a. We'll talk about like the numbers from from Jamie Newman here later, like pro football focus, all that kind of stuff. This could not be a a bigger contrast from what they they do as their identity on offense. Like the he was at Oklahoma State as the OC when Brandon Whedon and Justin Blackman were there. Yep. They they set school records in passing yards, total offense, uh, passing touchdowns, total touchdowns, points per game, all of it in 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 one season there. Then he went to Southern Miss. Like in two seasons or by the third season, he had they were the second team in cultural history to have a four thousand yard quarterback and two thousand yard running backs in the same season. And then he goes to the NFL and is able to work wonders with Jameis Winston, and they have the number one uh, passing offense and number three total offense in the NFL. So this guy, I think, is going to be successful. People are going to look at his him losing his job with the, the Browns and how big of a disappointment they were and kind of, like, write them off. I feel like Georgia's kind of just a little lying in the weeds, a little snake in the grass. I think Kirby knows what he's doing. I give Kirby a lot of credit for this hire because I was ready to just rip him and say – why are these guys so set in their ways and so stubborn when it comes to making these changes? And I say these guys because there are certain coaches across college football where when they keep a coordinator on staff, I'm thinking to myself, do, do they do they owe them some large sum of money or something? Why would they oh, why yeah. would they run it back? To run it the back. Game a special Coley. teams coordinator, Bobby Williams? My bad. I, we'll, we won't start. That was... <laughs> but there are certain moves like that where as time passes. You're just kind of wondering, all right, he's not seriously going to going to run this back, is he? But Kirby, for making this move, has said, we are going to change our offensive philosophy. And if you look at this trend, that has happened so much in the latter half of the 2010s, where now teams at big-time places, coaches, while they're on staff, have been willing to say, we are going to overhaul our offensive philosophy, and I tip my cap. 
because Bama did it in 2014, Penn State did it in 2016, Ohio State did it in 2017. Shoot, even Michigan, which I know is not on the same level as these other programs, but even Jim Harbaugh, stubborn Jim Harbaugh did it in 2019 with Josh Gaddis. LSU obviously did it most famously this past year in 2019. Georgia is now doing it in 2020. You have to get with the times. For Georgia to simply think that with this group, this personnel group, that you know, losing all the talent that they're going to lose on the offensive line and to think that they were going to be able to play the same exact way this next year would have been comical to watch. And it would have been a, a travesty. <clears throat> yeah. And I guarantee you that when Jamie Newman was sitting down with Georgia, he said, y'all aren't going to look like that next year, are you? Because I don't want to be a part of that. I can go to a bunch of different places. And yeah, maybe we won't compete in the same level that Georgia will, but... Man, I need to get to a system that's going to allow me to succeed, and that ain't it. I see. I I I, I disagree. I don't. I don't. Th- I think this this comment that we had the the stuff after the Sugar Bowl that I didn't like at the time. What he said about you know like the the disease at, at Georgia and players <clears throat> kind of like thinking they're better than they are. I think we might look back on this next year, or the year after, and this might have been good or bad. I think this might have been like Kirby's like manifesto or like his his like mission statement like the Tebow speech like I promise you'll never see somebody play hard like I think he is that whole commit to the G thing I think Kirby Smart is is basically saying like you commit to this program this school and and the reason why is like we're gonna win games and and, and by the way like the people he's bringing in he's not he's not like placating to all of these different five stars and like begging them to come there because he will like he will out recruit everyone else in the country and will, will replace any of these five stars or four stars that like haven't bought in, don't have the right attitude, we've seen that before. He's just constantly bringing in new five stars. The Jamie Newman thing, I told you that I've been hearing since November they were looking at Derek King and looking at a grad transfer. Like that was already in place. Yep. I think that Kirby, because this he didn't know he was going to get Munkin. Like obviously it was he was in limbo with his job because they hadn't hired a head coach in Cleveland yet, and this was kind of a benefactor of that. I just think that the what, what he's trying to do now is he's not being stubborn in his ways and being like, we're going to bring you in, but we're, we're going to run the football first. This guy, on average, throws the ball like upwards of 58% of the time versus running the ball. And that's that's the, the thing, though, that I think that Kirby was able to sell, is maybe he might not have had him exactly in place, but I think that had to be part of those conversations of, look, we're going we're gonna to shift our offensive philosophy. We realize the personnel that we have coming back doesn't necessarily cater to this team that's going to run the ball the way that Georgia, the, you know, the way that Georgia has in years past. And here's the thing: if you're a Georgia fan and you know you're thinking to yourself, "Oh, we're going to deviate from the run game all of a sudden, and this is going to be terrible," LSU this past year just had a historically dominant passing season. Mm-hmm. And who was the first team All SEC running back? Clyde Edwards-Helaire. Yeah. So Zamir White can have plenty of success in this system. And if I'm a Georgia fan, I'm not all of a sudden thinking to myself, oh, man, these running backs aren't going to want to come here or whatever. No, 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 no. It's just changing the way that you structure your offense to make you a little bit less predictable and to be able to say, we're going to run the ball out of this formation, out of that formation. We're going to have different personnel groupings that are going to be more, more in line with the times than what we have currently had because – Georgia saw its ceiling. It saw its ceiling this past year, and that's not to say they didn't rack up quality wins, but that offense limited their ceiling, and if they had had a different group and a different mindset in there, you can't help but wonder how things could have turned out differently for this team. James Coley was the ceiling, flat yep. out. And, and like I know we've, we've piled on like for most of the year, and he's got a lot of the blame. I think he's deserved it because like this pitch is like, what's that? What's the restaurant makeover show that, that Italian guy screams at everybody and calls them stupid? Uh, Hell's Kitchen? 
that's that's the British one. That's Gordon Ramsay. Oh yeah, that's tail the stick. One. Anyway, the, the, you know what I'm talking about though. That guy is like comes into a restaurant. He's like undercover, but you know who he is, and he just starts. Screaming I just keep thinking of Bar Rescue there. whenever you say that. Shout yeah, out, John. That's Tapper. what it is. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's what I said, John. What did I say, John? T- anyway, but like, I feel like that is Kirby Smart being like, "Hey, I need help, man." Like, like we have talent everywhere. You have twelve players on the current roster that are a four or five star at the skill position alone. You have a minimum of uh, like eight to nine to ten that are coming in in the freshman class. Like, it's it's basically like, like look at all the great things. Look at this nice shiny car. For whatever reason. I have uh, Helen Keller driving it, and I don't know. Like, I need somebody new. I need a new driver. Like, I need like. Th- there's there's no reason that the restaurant is this bad, or that it's no reason that we're messing. Like, it should it should never have been that in- inefficient. Just come. You have all the talent in the world. Like you. Like I gave you the keys to the, the Ferrari, and you like try to parallel park it in a spot that wouldn't fit, and just like. Going, the, I don't know. I'm making a bad example. You know what I'm talking about? Though? <laughs> he, he wrecked the that. Ferrari. He wrecked the Ferrari. I shouldn't have brought up parallel parking. Jamie Newman is part of this conversation, and I, I threw this tweet out on Saturday, thinking, ah, oh, maybe you know, we'll get some interesting feedback on this. Um, maybe maybe SEC fans will have different opinions than I will. And I was I was stunned <laughs> stunned with the reaction. I threw out my way too early top five SEC quarterbacks for 2020. And I said at the end, what's yours? And I got, I think, 136 replies, 134 retweets, and over 1,000 likes on this tweet alone. And it's not, it wasn't like, you know, sometimes if Tony Barnhart retweets something that I, that I tweet out, or if Cody Warsham does, who does great work with uh, LSU Communications, if like those guys retweeted, I sort of understand why a tweet picks up. This tweet was just from a variety of fan bases that were get, that were getting involved and stuff, and a lot of people quote tweeting and coming up with their own top five quarterbacks for the SEC. And what this made me realize is, holy crap, this conversation is wild, and you can go in a variety of different directions. So before everybody kind of realizes just how wide open it is when we start to break a lot of this stuff down in SEC media days, I thought, you know what? Why don't we break this down today? Because we're going to have different opinions on this, and people listening to this are going to have different opinions on this. And I'm actually not entirely sure if there is a a really bad opinion or a really bad ranking of your top five quarterbacks. Say Unless that you're just going to put Bama quarterbacks at, at all top five. You know, that's that's a little bit much. But no, but say, but say that again for real. I'm not sure that there is a bad ranking because so much of this right now is preference. Right, we are yeah. in different territory when it comes to returning SEC quarterbacks. The fact that Joe Burrow, Tua, and Jake Fromm, and these guys who have just been staples of the conference, and even Jake Bentley, who's been here for the last 45 years, isn't locking down one of those spots in, in the SEC quarterback rankings. And so, it is a very different era. And ranking a top five is not easy. It's not easy, and it's something that I, I struggled with even putting together a tweet. It was it was a, a very drawn out process. Yeah, I, I think it, it's, it's weird, too, because it's one of those things like, what are your factors leading into it? Is it, like, talent alone? Is it his numbers that he had this year? Is it who he has coming back? You know, all these different things, the style of offense. There's so many different things that go into it. But the best thing that I learned was um, we're, we're wrong either way. Yes, uh, oh, absolutely. Which is, like, honestly, I thought you had a great list, and, and I've given you more crap about your list last year than than anyone you deserved it but i'm not gonna Willis deserved it yeah, that, yeah. Was, that was tough but, i mean but again i had jerry garantano ahead of joe burrow so it, like there's so much that's going to happen from now until the actual actual season 
But I thought this was interesting, and it, it is a good reminder because it's off-season content. Like people, just for whatever reason, oh, have have it. the most and and loved have the most opinions about and love to talk about the quarterback situation. And I, honestly, last night the, the the hate we were getting back on social media from what we posted, I wasn't even mad. It was so fun and entertaining because there were just people really passionate, but like. You know, not a lot of research involved, I guess. I mean, yeah, and, you know, that's I, I realize that that certain fan bases are going to want to push their guy, and it feels like it's so wide open this year. And that's, it, yeah. is, it is a lot like Twitter Beetlejuice in the offseason now, where if you want to get you want to get some interaction, talk about some SEC quarterback, man. Like, talk, talk about the, the rankings that you have because it's it, people, people are going to come up with some, some crazy arguments and. I don't even hate all of them. I got some wild replies on some of this. And, you know, a lot of people saying Emory Jones is the second best quarterback in the SEC. It's like, all right. That, that one was mind-blowing. I didn't. That was my least favorite, I think. That, he's um, good. But, like, that, yeah, go ahead. So I rank this based on who I would want at week one 2020 season. How a player performs over the course of the year. And I, I think that certain players are in better positions to succeed than others. But... You know, I, I'm not gonna. I'm not necessarily gonna sit here and say that. Oh yeah, Bryce Young deserves to be a top five quarterback in the SEC when we've literally never seen this guy play in college football. I know he played in a great conference in, in high school football. Don't get me wrong. We talked to our buddy Luke Del Rio about that, but I ranked based on kind of what I've been able to see from a player. I want to see what they have done against Power Five competition. You have a look on your face of oh, was, what I just said about Bryce Young. No, no, not at all. Um, I was, before you actually get to the list, I, I just I wanted to like. Just basically say this again. This is this is completely objective, and it was, it was I was telling Ali yesterday. It's funny because it's like sports, it, everything is supposed to be so objective, and it, it immediately becomes subjective. Right, you know what right. I mean? So it's like, it, like the the response is what was funny about this versus last year. Everyone in the entire country was like, "Yep," like it's one and two, Tua and Fromm. Like I don't think anybody's arguing Easy that conversation. And, yep, and we're all stupid because we didn't see what Burrow did. Like. It, yeah, LSU fans, you guys all saw that coming. You guys are smart. I, I, I learned that about you know y'all yesterday. But what's funny about this versus last year you're talking about is last year it was like oh man the argument was who should be three right yep, exactly and and it was it was like the same two or three guys like Felipe should be up here and so and so should be down here. But this year like when I was going through this like scrolling through the amount of stuff like Emory Jones is the second best quarterback, Bryce Young is going to start over Mac Jones. Um, or people would be like, Joey Gatewood. I can't believe Joey Gatewood's not on here. And I'm like, what is it? What is happening right now? The, the amount of extra like write-in votes that, that people had were oh, yeah. hilarious. My rankings at number five, I have John Rice Plumley, um, somebody who we have talked about a whole lot and just how electric he is and the idea of, of, of him and Lane Kiffin's offense it excites me a lot. And I understand that there's there's knocks against him and there are people who say that Bo Nick should be ahead of him. Whatever, we'll get to that in a little bit. I have Jamie Newman at four based on a lot of the stuff that we've been I've been able to gather reading up on him the last couple weeks and all that you heard about him, you know, kind of toward the end of this season. I have Mac Jones at three. I have Kellen Mond at two and I have Kyle Trask at one. Now, I'm not saying, I know I'm all aboard the Kyle Trask hype train. I'm not saying that he is definitively the number one quarterback in the SEC. I, I can. I, it's the I most can, unsexy number one ever. It, it probably is. And you know what? I'd be surprised if he wasn't the first team all SEC quarterback. He or Kellen Mond is going to get it based on probably experience alone. And I, I think that that, that that just kind of says it all right there. It really does. 
Yeah, I mean, this is like if elevator music made it to like number one on the Billboard Hot 100. Like, wait, what is happening? Because it's like, yeah. it's not a guy that was on anybody's radar last year. He wasn't even, for a lot of fans, like the number two. He's the number three, probably the number three <clears throat> guy for most Florida fans going into this past season. And that's, that, that is what has changed. And really, I mean, the quarterback picture in the SEC has changed so dramatically. But there are a lot of people saying, okay, why do you have Kellen Mond at number two? He kind of is what he is at this point, losing uh, two of his top three targets. Yeah, I get that. Kellen Mond does a lot of things on a football field that very few guys in the country can do. Yeah, and that's not watching? Yeah, I mean, like, there are people who said, oh, like, have you just never watched Kellen Mond play football before? I've seen that dude break off 75-yard touchdown runs like it's nothing. And, yeah, he has his issues. I think he waits a little bit too long in the pocket. I kind of question his ability to fit the ball into tight windows all the time. I think he needs a good running be- a good running game to supplement his play. But at the same time, I'm taking Kalamond over, you know, his experience and, and his confidence and the way that he has played against some of these, some of these elite defenses. I'm going to take him over some of these less proven guys, so to speak, at least to start yeah. the year. So um, I'm going to... Uh, oh, go. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I was, I was, so was going to move on. I did, of course, uh, a deep dive on all these numbers. And what I'm, <clears throat> I'm going to do differently is I'm not going to just throw out all the numbers. I'm going to take a different route. And I'm going to go like old school, Chris, and just be kind of a dick about it. And, and just do tell it. you why. why like Because the, the responses about Kellen Mond were, were most surprising and trash. Because it's like... it's like what people, I'll tell you exactly what's, what's going on. I'll diagnose it. People are, are taking... A&M being a top 10 team preseason and going seven and five and how underwhelming that was. And they're putting all of that into what they think Kellen Mond is. And, and like that offensive line that he had in front of him was awful. They, he, they were ranked 106th in the country in sacks allowed. He, his numbers went down from a, a touchdown standpoint at the same amount of interceptions. You would have liked to see that improve maybe from the year before his completion percentage went up. He at times was like more efficient. He this is like people say, why the hell is Kelman on here? Like, or why is he on here? Why is he so high? You know, he's trash. Like people think he should be in the top five. He's a two-year starter in the SEC that has averaged thirty-four hundred yards a season and thirty touchdowns. Yeah, there's no one else that's even close to that. So he's like, going to be on on first or second team to start the year. There's no doubt in my mind about that. It, like, so if what is the argument you have against them? Like, I I, I get that he didn't play great at times. I would have loved to see what a this season kind of like a mid-tier quarterback was would do against that schedule. Because here's the deal, man. He was he was not a we're not saying he was the top quarterback or, or top two quarterback or top five in the SEC this year. But you know who's not coming back next year? Tua, from Burrow. Like it's tough. It's tough. It's really tough. So you automatically are gonna be going up a little bit yeah. and you in this offense especially, I think they're gonna be a lot better. Yeah, exactly. And I think that, you know, you, you realize that experience is just lacking so, so much from a, from a returning quarterback standpoint. And Mac Jones, what he did in a two-game sample size, and I understand that it's a very, very small sample size, but that's why I had him all the way up at number three, because what he did against consecutive top 25 defenses away from home is something that very, very rarely, and even Jamie Newman, who I'm going to give a lot of praise to, and I think he's got a lot of potential now, especially in this new offense, but, you know, ACC defenses were really bad this year, and I brought that set up repeatedly about Trevor Lawrence not facing top 20 defenses in the ACC, and that's the one question I have about Jamie Newman against elite defenses, which he's going to see in the SEC. Mac Jones, I just saw him look really, really good against consecutive top 25 defenses. Fit the ball into tight windows, have confidence in the pocket, be able to, to kind of diagnose something at the line of scrimmage and say, this is what we need to do. This is, the, this is going to be my first read. This is who I'm going to attack. 
I like Mac Jones coming back for Alabama, and I, he's going to get first and second team love, I bet. I bet he is going to be in that conversation, and part of that is the offense that he's playing with now that Najee Harris is back, and you've got three really, really proven skill players outside of him. That's going to help him as well, but that's that's kind of how slim it is. When we're talking about experienced quarterbacks, Mac Jones feels like one of the more experienced quarterbacks in the SEC, when obviously the sample size is still <clears throat> so, so small with him. People are are so excited to hate him, and I, I it makes me excited for it because because like the best part about this is there's all of the built-in arguments people like want to immediately jump to with uh, anything relating to Bama like well he didn't play anybody or he didn't start enough games. Mac Jones qualified for like for how many snaps he had. He started four games this season. I don't know how many total uh, attempts or, or, or plays it was. But he did qualify for this statistic and led the country in total yards per play. Led the country in yards per play at 9.8. I understand that it's a very small sample size, but it's a perfect sample size to kind of really get a, a look into how good this guy could be. Because, yeah, four total starts. He has completed 71% of his passes, uh, threw for 13 touchdowns, only had two interceptions. Those two interceptions were pretty big. But if you're saying that sample size isn't good enough to we don't know what he is, he did close out the season against two defenses that were ranked in the top 25. One that was ranked in the top yep. 10 in scoring and in total defense in Michigan. Agreed. Save, save all the like Michigan's trash, whatever. That's a full season worth of, of, of numbers. And it's a kid that, if, if in the same argument, like, well, he hasn't started that many games. Like, imagine having to make your, your first real, real start at Auburn in the Iron Bowl with all that. And I get that he threw two pick sixes. He also threw for 335 yards and four touchdowns. I thought he was good in that game. I thought he was he good. Was I thought good. his two mistakes were magnified, and I thought that that ultimately was the difference in that game. Yeah, I think Tua wins that game if he's starting as opposed to Mac Jones because that was the difference in a game that close and two two mistakes and yeah, that cost him. But I thought he had, there was so, so, so much more good than bad with with somebody like him. Do you have – so let's let's go through your – what's your top five? Because you have well, a little on, bit first of – First off, that, you're right about the two thing, but look, if you just make a 31-yard field goal, it's a different game. Regardless, I think the thing with Mac Jones is this. It, he – those two – like you, the argument about, well, it's only the receivers making the plays for him. Well, the good news is, like – he gets half of that production back, and he gets the receiver that had the most touchdown uh, receptions on the team with Devonta Smith coming back. And, oh, by the way, the guy that caught three of those four touchdowns against Auburn, he's also back. Yep. So I think that's that's what went into it for me. My ranking was this. I had five. I had Ryan Holinsky from South Carolina. Four, I, I had him. Jamie Newman. Um, three, I had Kellen Mond. Two, I had Mac Jones. And that's that was way more based off the potential of what he can do next year. And then one, I had Kyle Trask, and pretty I similar. was shocked that we were pretty, like, we were in complete agreement on the Kyle Trask thing. And again, you look at the numbers because people are like Kyle Trask isn't that great. Again, the most unsexy number one ever. Just yes, for sure. Ever. Remember when South Florida was ranked number two for like a week? Like that one that was time. Fun. That's pretty that. much what this is. And it, yeah. but he had his numbers the whole season. He is the leading. Returner in completion percentage, touchdowns, like, and he, I, I tell you what, the biggest thing for me with Trask, people that want to hate on him or say that he wasn't that great or a game manager, any of that, there's a four-game stretch that was arguably more difficult than any other, especially first-year starting quarterback, mm-hmm. stretch than anyone else in the country, where they went, they had Auburn at home, they went on the road at LSU, they had on the road at South Carolina after the loss at LSU, and then had number four Georgia away from home. In those four games, right, he had a total of 11 touchdowns, two interceptions. He put up 
over 300 yards against LSU. It was the only team in the country that was leading LSU that late into a game. He accounted for 11 of, of Florida's 14 total touchdowns during those, that span and 65% of their offense. He was good. I thought he was good. I thought he gave him a chance to win some some big time games. And I am I'm a Kyle Trask believer. I love hearing that Kadarius Tony is coming back and Trayvon Grimes is, is also going to be back. Florida, another team that kind of quietly, I know we, we didn't mention them up there when we talk about, you know, a team that benefited from avoiding these big time early draft departures. I know they lose CJ Henderson locked down corner, but a team that kind of dodged a, a couple of bullets there in terms of guys who could have left early and who are coming back. Um the f- number five slot is just going to be all over the place. And I, it, it's so preference. It, it really, really is. And Holinsky is someone who is going to be part of that conversation. I had a lot of people responding, why not Ryan Holinsky? You're sleeping on him. It's it's not that I'm I'm necessarily sleeping on on Holinsky or, you know, the guys the guys who are, are brought up a lot in this kind of like next group, Holinsky, Bo Nix, Garantano somehow, Terry Wilson, and then the LSU quarterback, which... As of right now, probably Miles Brennan, probably, but yeah, there's just confidence that whoever is quarterback at LSU, you know, is going to be able to have a lot of success thrown to Jamar Chase and, and Terrace Marshall. And I would feel so, more comfortable saying Miles Brennan than I would just say like what Cole Kublik did. This is how this whole thing started, was when he he put his rankings on Feinbaum, and it was like number five, whoever LSU's grad transfer is, and I was like, man, it, it oh. just. But it, it, you're right; it is about preference, and and I'll say that. I know we both have Newman in the top four, and we, we both think highly of him. And that's for me, it is solely based off of everything that I read from people that I trust more than myself. Pro Football, like, Focus, Pro Football Focus loves Jamie Newman. Fitting the ball into tight windows, that is what he does extremely well. And that is something that if you're able to do that at this level, you know, you look at kind of some of the guys that he's being grouped in with, that, that's the thing that's going to make the difference. But like I said, the only thing holding me back on, on you know, being all in with Newman so far is just I need to see it against that that you know as these SEC defenses when he's going to face a gauntlet and he's going to he's going to face them on a repeated basis as opposed to the 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 really really soft group team. of ACC defenses that that he saw throughout this year. Not saying that he can't repeat it, but that's that's a little bit of the wait and see mode with that. With Newman, I think it was it was I think surprising for everyone to hear how highly like he was rated again like with. Pro football focus because those stats and those numbers aren't just like well they threw the ball six times a game or, or it's totally different offense like he is the easiest like target to to build an argument against in my opinion and he also uh, to be honest I, I would I, I'm still high on him but I I would he'd be the the least surprising one that I like if you told me at the end of the season I was way off like if I was like the, the most wrong about this guy I'd be the least surprised if it was him because. If you've heard this stat before, when Jake Fromm was there, he finished the season with four of his last five games under 50% completion percentage. He obviously yep. struggled against Clemson. I think he threw like 100, 105 yards, or maybe like 40 yards. It was really bad. Regardless, that five spot with Helensky, I, I, Helensky was hurt for most of the year, had nothing around him. Had, I mean, and he still, I thought, put up really good numbers for the most part and, and did like, it, it, he was unfair, like what he was asked to do. Uh, the Plumley thing, I, I think you're wrong about. I think <laughs> I think I, I I like John John Rice Plumley a lot. I I'm so on board the bandwagon. I know he kind of he bucks the trend of what a 2020 quarterback looks like in this era of of high flying passing offenses and getting the ball to the edges and and all that stuff. And I, I think he's going to do it in a different way. And somebody who r- runs for over a thousand yards and double digit touchdowns as a true freshman to me like that in only that, nine that games. stands out. Yeah, in only nine games, and did so, you know, obviously a limited sample size. But to me, I think he is just 
going to be really, really fun to watch with Lane Kiffin. Bo Nix is somebody that we heard a lot about, a lot about. And people, a lot of Auburn fans saying, wow, how can you sleep on Bo Nix? Nobody in their right mind thought Bo Nix was a top five quarterback this year. And it was pretty clear, in my opinion, that he was in the bottom group of SEC quarterbacks based on his play. And I'm somebody that that advocated for him. I said, look, he's a true freshman. He's going to have his struggles. And I, I, I get he that. I think he's going to improve. No, I, I think he's going to improve. But he's somebody that, man, based on that sample size this year, what we saw, I can't just all of a sudden put him into that group and say, yeah, he's, he's one of the better SEC quarterbacks. I can't get there yet with him. I just can't. Okay, well, let me start with the Plumlee thing. Um, like, no, he didn't throw a touchdown pass the last five games of the season. I, I, that's not good. I know he ran the ball a lot, but they're not going to do that in, in this offense, I think. I think he's a really good, talented kid, but that's weird. That's weird that he, he, didn't, he didn't throw a touchdown pass in seven of nine games this year that he played. He's more of a runner. I mean, I've said that before. Of like Somebody who can, who can change the game from what, is he, what does he do best? Obviously, it's it's getting to the edge. It's it's running the ball on the outside. When he gets in the open field, he's really really fun to watch. It's it's a different identity, and he is being looked at in a different way than other guys in this list because you look at some of the guys above him, and you know those guys have done it with their arms, and he is his numbers are going to pale in comparison. And you could probably well, stack up yeah. his passing numbers and say that look, this is this guy is not that good of a quarterback. But then you actually sit there and watch him, and you look at the athletes that he runs away from, and it's not just the LSU game, but Man, the athletes that he ran away oh, no, from. I mean, he's he's a, one of the best athletes in the SEC, if not the country. And those five games that he didn't throw a touchdown pass, he had like eight rushing touchdowns. Like I'm not, I'm not arguing that at all. I'm just like, it's almost like the Keyshawn Vaughn thing, where it's like, yeah, he, I'm not arguing that he's not one of the best athletes or really good at like, you know, for his team. But it didn't result in him winning any games. Yeah, that's fair. That, that's fair. that was the biggest thing. So the stuff with Knicks, like I had Helinski on there up for mine. Like this is a kid that was. He had the second fewest interceptions from quarterbacks in the SEC and had the second most attempts, which for a freshman that, you know, his completion percentage wasn't that great. I thought that was really impressive. And and his touchdown to interception ratio in SEC games alone was just four to one, second highest in the league. Like Bo Nix, I honestly laughed last night. I thought I should change Bo Nix and put him at five. And then Ryan Holinsky liked the the Instagram post we had with him on at number five. Wow. So I don't think I can much. do it. Um, but I think Bo Nix, you're, you're right. And you're wrong about like the, he's, he's so up and down, man. Like he does so many things. You're like, how the hell do you make that pass? Like what, why do you make that pass or that decision? And then like, you know, it's like what Will said after, after the Bama game, like he does like three to five things a game that you're like, you are the worst quarterback I've ever watched. And then, then has three to five plays or throws. That you're like, how the hell did he just do that? Yeah. From, uh... I, at first, I was trying to put him put him in the way that we j- viewed Jake Fromm in 2017, and then I thought to myself, you know what, that's not even fair because Jake Fromm was way more efficient, way way more efficient. Was asked to do different things in that offense, obviously, but yeah, that that Auburn offense is going to look really different. The whole Auburn identity and the way that they're going to try and win games, I feel like with the pieces that they have to replace on defense, is going to be so much different than what we saw in 2019, and how Bo Nix's response is going to determine how he is viewed by season's end. The crazy thing, and what all this is setting up for, is that the leading passer in the SEC is probably just going to be whoever Mike Leach starts at quarterback, which we don't know I, who that is right now. I would honestly, I would love to see what that bet would be because you would th- that should be like they they should have the best odds because of his offense. Probably he doesn't right? have a guy on campus that is a, a good enough quarterback to run that offense. 
Not yet, but hey, Joe Burrow didn't go to LSU until after spring ball. You, you, you never know with some of these things. And, you know, Mike Leach, the guy who just cranks out top 10 passing offenses eight straight years doing that, would not surprise me to see Mississippi State all of a sudden throwing the ball over the place and, and, and having and being like, oh, wait, should we put Mississippi State's quarterback as first or second team by season's end? That could easily happen. Well, the Bo Nix thing, too, like the last thing we'll say about it is that he, it, what he was. As a freshman, he had so much talent around him, especially at that offensive line, defensive line. Like, he, he was able – he didn't have to win games for him. Right. And I know that sounds kind of weird because he had the touchdown pass against Oregon or whatever, but he was 13 of 31 in that game. Like, And he, to his credit, he didn't throw an interception in November. He got better as the season went on. But, like, I tell you what, man, you lose four or five offensive linemen and you lose the best defensive line and best defense you've had under Malzahn, he's going to be the one that has to go win them games, and I don't know if he can do that. Definitely will be a popular topic of conversation throughout the offseason. Quarterback rankings. Let us know what yours are if you have not already. I'm sure a lot of people have already posted on Facebook or on Twitter and have reached out and, and shared their top five. But a, a fun discussion that we're going to have probably repeatedly as things continue to develop this offseason. Let's go to our interview with our, our Bowl Mania runner-up, Alex Cooper. Not necessarily our winner. Our winner was actually Cujo1809, um, but Alex reached out to us first and sent us a really nice, long, thoughtful email and told yeah. us how he got second place. And as you'll find out, I mean, this this kid is he is crazy, crazy smart. Um, but, you know, congratulations to him for really dominating us in this. Um, next, yeah. year, next year you're going to learn what a confidence point is. I don't have confidence myself to that. All right. Well, we, we can only hope. Let's kick into our interview with Alex Cooper. We're now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is our college bowl mania runner-up alex cooper now alex first of all congratulations um by coming, by coming in second place <laughs> you finished 35 spots ahead of me and i think 61 spots ahead of marler which is pretty good um how does it feel to be that much smarter than two guys who talk college football for a living <laughs> well uh thank you thank you all for having me on i appreciate it and i i would not say that i am smarter uh i've been i've been a college football fan for a long time and i've always particularly love bowl season part of the reason why i like is that I, I do these picks every year and i am though i watch football all through the regular season i'm just traditionally terrible at picking these bowl games so uh like last year i was in the bottom third of the nation in this uh espm bowl mania so it's uh this year was obviously a, a better outcome and uh, I'll, I'll give give the credit to you all some i started listening to you all this year and suddenly i, I finish uh with a really good spot Oh, dang. Well, we'll, take, we'll gladly answer. take the assist. We'll take the assist for that one. Um, so for those who don't know, um, and I'm guessing if you know the general public doesn't know this, but you are a, a Tennessee grad student right now, but you had the most confidence points on Florida. How painful was that for you? Um, it's not, it's not as painful as perhaps some balls fans would, uh, would have you believe. I, I was, um, in the student section before the, the kickoff of the Florida game last year. And that was, uh, that was pretty rowdy. Obviously they, they quieted that down pretty quickly, but, um, I, I don't have as much animosity to other SEC teams outside of those games, just cause I, I take more of a, uh, you know, we're all in this together type uh, atmosphere, especially in bowl season. So, um, also, having parents that went to Virginia Tech, uh, picking against Virginia was not something that uh, I found mm. difficult. Um, follow-up question. Alex, what is a confidence point? Because it took me roughly 
How do you not get this? I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I well, I don't know what I did, but I did it wrong. Um, either way, so, I so listen. We were gonna. I was gonna save this for fourth and wrong. You're obviously a Tennessee fan, and part of this that's really cool is that you know really getting to know one of our listeners. So I'm gonna ask just the most important question here right off the bat. Kill Mary Screw, Kiffin, Derek Dooley, and Butch Jones. Go. Mary Butch. And uh, screw Kiffin. Yep, that's where I'm going. And Dooley, yeah, yeah, he's off. Off with Dooley. Yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's good. <laughs> I, I, that I, is I not the first time that but, sentence has Butch, been said. Butch, Butch Jones, you know, you keep keep him around. It may get better in time. It may not, but you just live with it. And Kiffin's exciting. And Dooley, why? <laughs> yeah. You know, Butch Jones would be we... so supportive if you married him too, because like you you put on like that weight once you get comfortable, and he'd be like, mm. "No, you're still a five star." <laughs> It's it's perfect. <laughs> Although we had like five seconds of silence too, because that needs to yeah, be that was... to considered. That was great. I was, <laughs> was I was letting it sit there. I was like, all right, this needs to seriously be thought about. Um, so along those lines, you know, you kind of hinted at this. H- have you always sort of been an SEC fan? I know growing up in you know in the on the East Coast in Virginia area, um, you know, maybe that was a little bit of a different upbringing for you. Um, so kind of when did your SEC fandom begin, and then when did you start listening to the podcast? So I I was born actually in northern Alabama in Huntsville, um, and I've got mm. grandparents who went to the University of Tennessee, um, and so I was um, I was always really an SEC fan. You know, I have fond fond memories of two thirty Central Time, the SEC on CBS. You know, the the music hasn't yeah. changed, and I appreciate that because that's is very nostalgic. I think for a lot of us. Um, and then going into middle school is when I moved to Virginia and uh, Southwest Virginia, and that's where I consider really my, you know, where I grew up. Uh, but I did notice, even even though with uh, the Virginia Tech being about 15 minutes away from uh, where I lived, that there there was something different uh, in the in the football fandom. Um, so I continued to kind of champion the SEC as I lived there, and um, even though I. I cheered for tech but i also cheered for tennessee and now of course i live in tennessee and i'm uh, attending there for and get my get my master's in uh, geography at ut so and uh as so, far as the podcast I did, I did start listening to that this year um i picked that up and that's been a really nice addition to uh to the fandom that i've become accustomed to nice Hopefully it was after I made that really hot take about uh, Jared Garantano being the third best quarterback in the SEC. It, um, it was not. As, that was about the time I I, uh, I started uh, I started listening, and then you know I went to the I went to some of those early games, and yeah. Wow. Well, thanks for sticking uh, sticking with it after that. That was not, not my best uh, first first impression. Um, so as a Vol fan, this season was pretty special. Um, in the way that that team closed out the season. What moment or, or what game maybe did you kind of get a feeling, um, you know, or know that things kind of turned a corner in Knoxville? Uh, where I knew that things turned the corner was South Carolina. Uh, that was that was a really mm. emphatic win coming off or against a team that was coming off of a, you know, that obviously special Georgia win. I really started to believe you know, that something, you know, that a bowl trip was possible after the Mississippi State game. Um, you know, obviously Mississippi State, with a losing record and fired their coach, you know, it wasn't the year that Bulldog fans were hoping for. But um, at, at that point in the season, uh, you know, there was a loss to Kansas State. But, you know, they they were a, 
they were one of the you know respectable cross division West West opponents and uh, went and stuck out a, a pretty ugly game. Uh, it wasn't great weather and uh, they stuck it out and I thought you know this could be something. And then they came out and played the way they did against South Carolina. Um, I got to watch uh, in Lexington uh, them stop uh, Lynn Bowden on that fourth down in in, uh, in Kentucky and that was that was kind of icing on the cake. It sealed the deal. I, I figured either Missouri or Vanderbilt would be able to uh, to give them the bowl trip. With this season now in the books, everybody knows the Tennessee hype train is going to kind of get rolling a little bit. On a scale of 1 to 10, with 1 being Butch, Le- Butch Jones-level disappointment and 10 being like it's about to be 1998 all over again, where would you rate your level of excitement for this program after the way it finished the season? What a good question. Um, I, I am Thank not you. aboard the hype train. I, I don't Ooh. I don't think that that's God, where I am. I, I am. I am an optimi- optimistic, but I, I like to be realistic. Um, I'm, I'm the guy when there's a pass interference that's obvious on your team and everybody's hollering at the refs. I'm like, guys, he, he did it. <laughs> um, so I, I, I like to think that I'm – I like to think I'm reasonable. I, I, I almost go right down the middle of the five. I, I am optimistic that um, that we've got good management um, from the administration uh, and the coaching staff going forward. I think that it's going to work out better uh, than I thought after the whole Shiano incident. Um, so I am excited. I, I don't see a, a 1998 situation coming at least anytime soon uh, but uh, i think that um, there there are things to look forward to i just look over at georgia and florida and the permanent opponent in alabama and, and that's just that's really hard to overcome um, but it means that there are some exciting games coming to neyland uh, in the next couple years so a little peel behind the onion here. When you sent us this email kind of reaching out, being like, hey, you know, I finished second um, in Bull Mania, finished first before a last-minute entry kind of went in, you told us your background, and it's really, really interesting. Yeah. So your field of study at Tennessee is researching the intersections of Southern identities and SEC fandom. Tell us more about that and what you're hoping to be able to do with your degree. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you, you, said it, you said it perfectly. Um, I, I think... Um, I think we can all agree, listeners, you all, and I can agree that there there are a lot of strong elements of, of Southern tradition and ritual and the SEC fandom and specifically game day. And, and as a geographer, I'm trying to not only map where that fandom occurs, but to try to explore all sorts of its place-based dynamics. Um, so, for instance, what I've done to map the SEC fan base um, as I've tried to compile all sorts of data, like where people buy foot, football tickets and where people donate to the school's annual funds, like uh, the Gator Boosters or Tigers Unlimited or Crimson Tide Foundation, that type of thing, uh, or where a school's radio network is and where states offer schools vanity license plates. There's all sorts of different ways that, that people uh, try to express their fandom. Um, and the results are pretty interesting. Uh, we we often think of and talk about a team's footprint, uh, be it recruiting or fan uh, fandom, as its state. Um, and I think that's really interesting. And, and my initial results kind of bear that out. You know, people 
the the Georgia Florida line does it actually divide Georgia and Florida fans to some extent? Yes, and um, I, I think that's interesting. Uh, but then also I try to think about you know what what we all participate in this fandom that we get get excited about and invest time in. Uh, try to think critically about it. Like how how does how does this fandom really affect this place that we live? Um, how is our landscape changed by our team's logos and colors being on every other billboard and car bumper that we see? Um, why is SEC fandom, you know, when you look at the stands, why are most of the fans predominantly white? What does it say about people's values and, frankly, the southern economy that we are all willing to spend a lot of money on merchandise and tickets to go to participate in this game day tourism. Uh, and specifically mm-hmm. at UT, when I'm doing, I'm working with the ticketing office right now um, to try to get high level data and analyze it and, and research how does that game day tourism affect and ultimately harm the environment. Uh, so a, a lot of that's academics. That's fascinating, man. Yeah. Thank it you. Kind of a, a lot of academics want to, Go ahead. Sorry, uh, just a lot of academics are are not really interested in sports. You know, they kind of kind of look at what we we celebrate and and what we participate in and and want to um, you know <laughs> basically say it's an inconvenience to their funding or their parking um, to try to get to their building on campus. But uh, I want I want to challenge all that and say no. What 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 we what we do as fans is important. Um, and try to demonstrate why. I like that. Really interesting. Yeah. Really interesting. Marler, what were you going to say? Well, one, I think that'd be a fascinating article, and we, I, I would love to hear more about it at some point. And the other thing is, this has been quite a roller coaster for me because when I read geography, I, I read geology, and I was like, we're going to talk about rocks. And that was <laughs> way off. So words are, I mean, words are hard, but um, that's, that's, that's fascinating stuff, man. Yeah. Wow. So what's besides maybe that like vol Twitter is a different beast and (laughs) social media activity on a given Saturday is just off the charts in the the SEC. What's maybe the biggest thing that you've sort of learned from covering the conference or from studying the conference more specifically, any sort of pattern trend, something that that just kind of stood out as you kind of dug into your research? Uh, That's that's a good question. Pattern or trend? Um, I'd say kind of the the administrative um, jungle almost that some of these schools have. The uh, I, I was fortunate enough in my some of my research to to get to go and travel to some of these schools to talk to officials from most every SEC school uh, to try to get get data to to map fans. But I also appreciated the conversations and getting to see some of the towns that. You know, I wouldn't have been to Starkville or um, Columbia, Missouri, certainly from where I live, other than, you know, trying to do this research and and just the, the different setups that these schools have to try to um, facilitate fan attendance at the games, um, to try to raise money through their booster clubs and uh, try to deal with parking. Every school tries to tackle it a little bit different. Uh, there's not one uniform uh, model for how uh, admit the administrators try to to bring bring fans to campus to spur fan excitement uh, because you've got a lot of different situations. You know, Mississippi State 
is in a lot is in a very different situation than their uh, closest or one of their closest teams, Alabama. You know, they've got a different recent history. They've got different levels of fan excitement. They've got different coaching situations, and so um, all of the different ways that the administration tries to cater to its fans, um, make them happy, be competitive uh, in football, balance that with other sports that are happening uh, on their campuses and and try to um, be competitive in the most competitive conference in the country. So, like, obviously as an SEC fan, I want to talk about rocks for a second. Um, (laughs) No, I'm kidding. But, like, as an SEC fan – there's always the stereotypes for each fan base and all that kind of stuff for different, you know, campuses or, or cities or, or, or stadiums. What's, what's like maybe the big, like one trip or, or, or place that you might've been way off base about, or is totally different than what you heard about um, before you visited there, good or bad. Hmm. I would say I'm thinking um, probably Arkansas and Florida. Um, you, you, you know, there's, there's an unfair, you know, the unfair media perception, uh, of both states writ large, you know, there's always, always the, what crime happened in Florida today and the, the Walmart stereo of Arkansas and, and, you know, the stereotypes are, are, are sometimes built on something that's true. Um, but maybe that's not always the case. I, I found, um, Fayetteville and Gainesville to be um, perfectly decent and, and frankly, nice places uh, to go. Um, I, I think that I I would be happy going to to college at either of those places. Um, so the the idea that you know people put take the perception of the entire state and maybe project it onto this one campus, this one city, this one town. And sometimes that's not always the case, which, again, as a geographer thinking about all these places, uh, that's that's very interesting also to me. As a as a Florida man, I can confirm that not all of us are that crazy. I mean, some of us like, yeah, but not, not all of us all the time. So um, that's that's really interesting stuff. So we want to we got one question here before we get to two minute drill. And you know this is this is pretty important. This is probably the most important question that that we've asked um, in a while to, to anybody. What's better, Marler's Coach O impression or his Matt Luke impression? Um, better, better, better in terms of accuracy, probably Matt Luke. But better in terms of what I enjoy most, I am a pro Coach O impression listener. I know it's a pretty mm. divisive subject, but I, I do enjoy it. I was. Part when L- when LSU won the national championship, part of uh, part of my excitement was, oh yes, Coach O gets to come on the pod again. I was I was excited. <laughs> Kuba, Kuba. Ah. Uh I appreciate that, man. And, you know, when I started doing it, divisive is what exactly what I was going for. Yep. So I was. <laughs> uh, well, I'm you have kidding. succeeded. All right, let's. Yeah, right. Um, I, we're, I'm done talking about granite and quartz and all that other stuff. Um, we're going to talk about two-minute drill. Are you ready to play? I know you've heard it before. Heard it before. I'm ready. You don't sound ready, Alex. I'll be honest with you. So <laughs> it's time to strap in. Game can you, time. Can you ever be ready uh, for two-minute drill? 
<laughs> That's a good you point. You know what? Emotionally, no. So, um, Connor, put two <laughs> minutes on the clock. Here we go. First question, favorite rival to beat? Florida. Good answer. Uh, your dream golf foursome, dead or alive? Go. Jesus, Obama, Nick Saban, and Kirk wow. Street. Pretty wow. sure one of those, the two of those people are the same, but I'm not going to tell you who. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, better Tennessee royal family, the Clausens or the Colquitts? Colquitts. Love, love me some punchers. Nice. <laughs> so Special true. teams are important. Uh, favorite Tennessee childhood memory? childhood um maybe college isn't childhood but getting to see the battle at bristol tech versus tennessee really cool yeah oh yeah about that that was really cool that, yeah i i wore, I, wore an, I, I wore an orange virginia tech shirt i, I at the time was oh. not a tennessee student so so i i, I, was, I, I tried to have it both ways points. okay <laughs> um here we go back on it best game you've ever seen in person Um, uh, Tennessee, Kentucky last year was great just because we stomped them, but um, seeing Alabama beat Washington in the playoff was really awesome also, just from the okay. status um, standpoint. Go-to tailgate booze and or food? Uh, booze, Coors, Coors Light, because that's the only time I'll probably drink it. Um Food, barbecue. I love barbecue. And whatever sauce yes. the region where I'm in is serving. Ooh, I like that. Okay. Um, favorite stadium that's not Neyland? Uh, uh, outside, uh, I haven't been to many, uh, but Lane Stadium, you, you really got to uh, respect the entrance. I know the stadium isn't up to... The attendance yeah. stuff that all the SEC schools are, but it really is, you know, when when everybody's jumping, when you don't have uh, a mediocre team in Blacksburg and there's a, a a good team coming in, that's that's really special. That's very true. That's you leave fair. your ACC bias somewhere else, Alex. Um, <laughs> no, I'm I would like to see that one day. All right, two more. <laughs> Favorite non-Tennessee player of all time. Oh, I'm not sure. John Tim Tebow is very inspiring. He's pretty cool. Okay, I like that. Sure. That's good. Right. Um, and last but not least, favorite SDS podcast host? Um, have Have I acquired that position now? Is that something that I get to look in the mirror for? <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a great way to answer that, actually. That's that's actually a really Thank good you. way to kind <laughs> of was, circumvent that. I was, I was scrambling. Well, hey, guys, okay, I really uh, appreciate you all. I really appreciate you yeah, all. Yeah, absolutely, man. we got to add these up uh, real quick, Alex. That is that is about – Connor, tell me about You carry, carry the one. That is 69 points. Yeah. Oh, nice. So very, very nice, nice round. Very nice. Wow. Well, um, Alex, yeah, that's, we, that's we really appreciate you coming on. Hey, yeah. thank, thank you hey, all for wow, having that's... me. I know that listeners don't get, to, don't get to come on the pod every day, so thanks for uh, – chewing the fat with me and let me talk about my research for a little bit. I, I think that what you all do is, uh, is really nice. So for, for all the fans, thank you for the, the time and the work you all put in. Um, 
you know, the, I'm not a, I'm not an X's and O guy. So um, bringing that type of level, that type of talk to us as the, as the fans is, is really nice. So appreciate you all having me on. Uh, thanks for hosting the bowl pool. Uh, better, better luck next year and uh, good luck in during the off season. All right. Thanks brother. You have a good, good one. Thanks man. We'll talk soon. Take it easy. You too. All right. Bye. Appreciate Alex for coming on. The fact that we did not say Alice Cooper throughout that entire interview. Props to us because I wanted to say Alice Cooper every single time. Um, yeah. Very, very smart individual. Um, thank you to everybody who played in our Bowl Mania group. I know we didn't talk no, about that last no, week. No, don't say that. Yes, I'm going to. And thank you for everybody who understood the instructions and knew how to play <laughs> and knew that it wasn't against the spread or anything like that. All I right. set it up. I, I'm the one that know. set up the whole thing and did, it still did it wrong. Regardless, I'll tell you one thing that's never wrong. Just get right into it. That's our good friends at Texas Pete's. You know we love them. We give them a shout out every single week. They are the sponsor of this podcast. Um, But I've loved them, you know, for a long, long time. And and we'll continue to love them. I don't, you know, honestly, this is probably my my vows. I need to write this down. Are you going to have Texas Pete dust in your vows? I'm going to actually throw up the Texas Pete dust like Mm. LeBron does before I go down the, like, walk down the aisle. Oh, you know how everybody, you know, throws the, um, uh, what do they throw? Um, like birdseed? Yeah, like the birdseed. I'm going to throw or, Texas Pete dust at all of you. Not not at Allie, though, because that would, you know, the dress. Yeah, don't do that. It's a good way to not get invited. Um, it's just I got to save the date already, Texas all right? Pete We're good. Dust on, like, nonstop. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, and listen, if you are coming to the wedding, uh, I know we, like, Mickey Sheremy's probably our flower girl, but um, make sure, like, this is the gift that always keeps on giving. We don't need blenders. We don't need toasters. We registered for a toaster and a toaster oven, and I'm going to lose my mind. So just bring me some Texas Pete's, uh, and you know, and, and keep bringing it home for yourselves as well. And make sure when you do, you send us pictures, recipes, all that good stuff, uh, and and make sure you use the hashtag sauce like you mean it. And also go to texaspeet.com for some some new recipes because now it's the off season. We got we got time to learn stuff. Speaking of the off season, we've got our first edition of peak off season content, and a lot of people ask us, oh, what are you able you guys able to do during the off season when you got a little bit more time? Well, we binge watch things like the Aaron Hernandez doc on Netflix. If you have not watched it yet, please feel free to pause this right now. We don't want to necessarily spoil anything for you, but spoiler alert. Like, he killed him. He killed himself. Um, allegedly. <laughs> allegedly. Um, go do it, though. Go watch it. It's three episodes. It's very, very interesting. A lot of people have been talking about this on social media. We have people talking about it in the Facebook group. And I want to dig into some of this stuff because, obviously, he is somebody who played at Florida and was a very prominent part of the of just football in general in the 2010s and what this story ultimately became. But my first thought watching this was, this was super recent, and I'm surprised that I kind of wrote this off. <laughs> yeah, we're getting like worse and worse as like society where we just get like desensitized and like we just devolved as, as people, I think, because it's like, and then like, this is still horrific and it's, it's a fascinating story. But yeah, it's like, oh, I've, we're, I feel like crime and murder documentaries are like the most popular genre of, of Netflix documentaries anyway. Right. So it's like, all right, moving on to the next murder. But, but the, yeah, the, I, I didn't realize it happened in 2017. All that's like is when he actually hung himself. It's it's crazy because a lot of the elements, like you say, we are desensitized, desensitized. Yeah, to these days. And I think if you were somebody who sort of dismissed this story, it's because a lot of the elements that were part of it, I, I think. The average person is used to seeing. You have a racial minority who gets caught up with a bad crowd. You have someone with a major case of CTE who clearly went crazy. Um, 
those things aren't necessarily rare in this day and age, but the combination of all these different things are rare. And the doc even sort of got into his hidden homosexuality and how his d demeanor essentially overcompensated for all that stuff. And it sort of left it open to interpretation. But just all yeah, these yeah, that different had nothing elements. to do with like the actual murder itself. To be like, I, and I, I'm not speaking for you. I, like just just so we're all clear that that I don't think that was like. One of the storylines was like, is this why he murdered him? I think they were trying to get inside, and the whole point of this doc, and there's a lot of a yeah. lot of Aaron Hernandez content out there for whatever reason in the last couple months. I think they were trying to sort of get inside his mind and what led somebody, what sort of combination of all these variables led him two to lives. do the things that he did. Yeah, it was it was two separate lives, and all the and because everybody's a lot of people are trying to say, well, what was the thing that sort of set him off and. Some people said, oh, yeah, CT, obviously, he clearly was messed up in the brain. And, yeah, I think that was part of it. But there are a lot of people who have CTE who don't commit double murders and, you know, do the things that he was accused and ultimately charged with doing. And I think that it's just the, the combination of all those different things is super rare. And it was odd to see it play out in the fashion that it did. Yeah, I think the first trial they had, it was – it did, like, hold – everyone's attention like it was all over the news for like i feel like for such a long time and and you know that was 2013 though you you have like it it's still recent but it, there's such like a lapse in in like the, like the timeline of the story you know what i mean like sc mm -hmm. fans remember he left in like 2010 after 2009 season and then was like in the nfl and by that point like you just kind of had this like image of him like all right he's I'm not saying this this word, but like people would say, like he's a thug, he's got a bunch of tattoos, or he's you know he got all these failed drug tests, like just dumb stuff like that. So I think people had kind of had their own negative perception of, of who his who he was or his image was representing. I, I just this this whole thing, it was such a it wasn't OJ, it wasn't like as big as the OJ thing, which which is weird that it's it's even being compared to that because it's like almost like this like. King like like asking for a gesture to entertain him like that murder's not as it is entertaining to me. Well, the elements and people the reason that people have compared it to the OJ stuff is people are trying to figure out why would this person who has all these elements working in favor where he signs the five five year forty million dollar contract that was a very that was brought up very very frequently in the doc of right. why would this person who just has his entire life in front of him is in his early 20s has a woman who is ride or die with him i mean clearly ride or die and is you know has this this little family and and lives in this nice part of connecticut who actually had a they're pretty in connecticut connor like yeah they're in like, bristol that was that was the thing that i i i sort of had to remind myself even during while all the trial and stuff was unfolding was this wasn't necessarily somebody who did whatever he could to survive when he was a kid. He had a good upbringing. He had a, you know, he was in a situation with, with parents who, you know, weren't necessarily dealing with poverty or something like that. And I think that the natural connection that we, and myself included, I'm totally guilty of this is, Oh, guy with tattoos, who's a minority. He probably had to do what he could to survive. And this is just a, a byproduct. Yeah. I was like, no, this was, this was different elements that led to what ultimately happened. Yeah. Agreed. I think that that is, that was really interesting to me too, because I think that is a, a lot of people's assumption would be, it's like just kind of like lump them in with like the stereotypes we have of like maybe professional athletes and, and all that kind of their backgrounds. This, I don't, who murders someone in Connecticut? Like I, I, I thought you only a mile away from their house too. That was that. So the 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 part the part that's like 
there's a lot of parts of his story, and I've I've seen this, and we'll get into the judgment of it in a minute. But like, I've seen a lot of people that have been sympathetic to Hernandez, and um, or like they've I think it's like a thinly veiled, uh, you know. Like it's just it's a it's a misrepresentation of of them trying to be understanding, but it's just they're fans of either the teams he was on or what. Like that they would make like any excuses for him. And, and I will say he didn't have like a, a a rough upbringing from like a poverty standpoint. He did grow up in a house that was like you know like kind of like volatile at times, and his dad was like emotionally or physically abusive to his mom. And so the part of the story where I knew that I was like, oh, this makes sense of why he does this, why he is the way he was. When his dad died when he was 17, that's like a very formative time in your life where you need, like, a, like a, especially boys, like, need, a, like, a man's, like, guidance. And, for and, sure. and, and, and like, reach, like, look for that. And I think with Hernandez, he had had that for so long. because like, that his dad was, you know, so involved in his life, especially with sports. And then not only does he pass away, but then, like, you have here, two months later, his, his mom is starting to hook up and, and see and date his cousin's husband, Bizarre, totally, totally bizarre, and this is an area that, like, I actually deal a lot with because, I, and I don't know if I've said this on on this podcast, but I every every other Wednesday I volunteer with New Hope for Kids, yeah. which is an organization that helps kids who are dealing with the loss of, of a loved one, and um, we have kids essentially from ages like four to through high school who come in. And if there was somebody who came in in Aaron Hernandez's position who was 17 years old and we found out, you know, the, the file of information that says, oh, by the way, the mom just started dating the dad's best friend or, or something like this. He's or like talking living to the mom, in the house like, in your dad's room. Yeah, like, living there. We'd be like, holy cow, like what in the world are we, are we dealing with here? So that element alone is crazy. Like wh- when I heard that, my, my mind is just going like, all right, I can understand why a person all of a sudden had these 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 sharp reactions. Not to sympathize demons. with Darren Hernandez, but yeah, had these demons. And you know, you you learn that his mom was obviously his mom looked nuts in this doc. His his mom looked absolutely she was all crazy. She was yeah, all that, over that, the place. That is not like sympathizing with Aaron Hernandez. I'm just telling you that I I get why like the reasons like why he would start acting out not to murder necessarily, but like you know. I didn't have anything that dramatic growing up, but I definitely get to the point like where if you if you grew up in like a traumatic experience or had like childhood trauma, there's some you just you get to a point where you are able to cope with things where you have like you know things have been like this like we're like no matter what your life is now it's like well it's, at least it's not that bad you know what I mean like you'll yeah. settle for things and and you, you start living a life where you're more you're comfortable because like I grew up poor I talk about this alley all the time I grew up poor so like money I'm not great with it because. You know, like I, 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 mean, I was just so used to going through like day to day, like just getting through the day for most of my life, and so I get why he had his demons, quote unquote. But he was also he did a lot of this to himself because I think once he had this issue happen, like in high school, he's also a six four, two hundred thirty pound tight end, he's the number one tight end in the country, and everyone, everyone he brought into his life was bad. <laughs> Urban Meyer, not the best person to have in your life not when the you're the best person. I think there are people that if you if you're not a fan of Florida, you watch that and said, "Wow, Florida made help make Aaron Hernandez into what he is." And I think what needs to be understood is that 
Urban Meyer is not necessarily the first or the last coach to cover up suspensions yeah. by throwing a guy in a walking boot. I mean, that, that's happened before, and that's not to say that it's a totally forgivable thing. But obviously, Aaron Hernandez was dealing with a, a, a drug addiction throughout all of all of college because he repeatedly, you know, they they said that in the doc. Somebody just smoked marijuana regularly, and yeah, he's that doesn't necessarily make you a murderer or anything like that. But they sort of suggest in the doc. What could have gone differently for Aaron Hernandez had he gone to UConn instead of Florida and not been part of this beast that Florida was going to feed? And what what do you mean by feeding the beast? What it what, you know? Obviously, he's going the there ego. to play to play football. The ego is part of this, but an incident like where he sucker punches the bartender at the swamp, where it's basically his first time going out to a bar and a college town didn't realize that oh you got to like pay for these two drinks, and then they have the charges dropped. And you find out that the swamp didn't press charges because, well, I mean, they didn't say it directly, but it's probably not the best business if the swamp is suing or, you know, in some sort of legal matter with a star player on the football team. And yeah. these types of things happen in college towns, and it sort of leads people to believe that, oh, well, just because, you know, this guy wasn't necessarily accused of doing this, then he's a good guy and he's fine. And Florida did a great job of doing its homework to say, we, we we feel like we can promote him to the Patriots, where Urban Meyer was saying, yeah, you need to keep a close eye on this guy, but, you know, he's still worth drafting. But he still, he still fell in the yeah, draft a but, lot. So there's the 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 part of the, the story that I'll defend the least is Urban Meyer's involvement, because this dude, I thought he came out, like, obviously Hernandez looks the worst from this documentary because he murdered somebody. Urban Meyer, like, he, he did, whether you like to hear it or not, he did help feed into this sociopathic and narcissistic personality that, that Hernandez adopted and, and became. Because when you when you placate and allow people with, with no discipline and no repercussions, like, constantly. It's been, I don't want to say it was like, you know, the inmates running the asylum type thing at Florida at all, because they were obviously one of the most successful programs in cultural history for those three to four years. But when you're allowing everything, when you're, like, with that group of people, it does, you know, kind of build this, like, false confidence of I can do whatever I want and I'm an athlete and I can get away with whatever I want because I'm an athlete. And if you think that's a stretch or that's, that's too far, the like the actual facts of the case to show you how dumb, he never thought any of this through. And like, I, I think all of that kind of goes back to the fact that I can do whatever I want. I'm going to get away with it. This stuff doesn't matter. He leaves to go pro. I'm sure Urban was like kind of trying to build him up the Patriots. For his own good. Like, yeah, this is course. a guy that we had drafted. Like, the the entire time, I don't think Urban Meyer ever cared about his well-being. I, I'm sure he didn't want to see him turn into a murderer. But, like, this just seemed like a, a very, like, you're working for me. Yeah, exactly. That was the relationship. Crazy to think, too, that he had, he was already, the murder that he stood trial for, the double murder, um, he, that ultimately he had to stand trial for happened before he signed that five-year, $40 million contract. And he well, played the entire season. Yeah, and then the Florida stuff, to. too, that he was linked to as well. Just crazy, crazy story. One last thing I want to I want to hit on here, and this is, I don't want to come off too preachy in this, but I think it kind of needs to be said and needs to be reminded when people watch stuff like this, college football fans especially, for the innocent until proven guilty crowd, you tell me that Aaron Hernandez should have been playing while standing trial for murder. Because we in the media get ripped all the time for saying a punishment was a slap on the wrist or a coach is protecting this player. And the extent that some people go to to blindly support an athlete because of their abilities is sad. Yeah. 
And there are a lot of people who are of the free Aaron Hernandez campaign. And if they were saying that, I guarantee you it was because they're a fan of Florida. They're a fan of the Patriots. I'm not saying all Florida fans or all Patriots fans did this or something, but like think long and hard about who you're saying, oh, this person deserves to be able to, to play football, to have to have the, the luxury of playing football before you come out and you, you, you blindly support somebody like that. Just remember that. Yeah, it, like, and I completely agree because that is that was super weird to see. Like, like and, and Boston fans, and I know I, I like the Red Sox and all, but like people in Boston are, are the worst. There's a reason that whole mass hole thing is, is a thing. But it, it no, nothing that I'm saying about like the demons or all that kind of stuff is in support or defense of Aaron Hernandez as a person. This like the the best and most hilarious part of this entire case is he the blue bubblegum thing where he stopped at a gas station and bought a pack of blue bubblegum and then they found blue bubblegum in the car they found a piece at at the murder scene that was like the, one of the only things besides like the like the tire marks or uh, the 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 bullet shell too yeah yeah he left a bullet shell in the car in the rental car, yeah, and then and then went back to his house that had surveillance everywhere, and then threw away the wrong part of the surveillance tape. Like every single part of it was, it was almost like it's like comical, haphazardly like screw up of how, how just the worst criminal ever. I, I just, I, I will say, the one part I will get preachy about, and I, I was so amazed, and the more I think about it, it's, it's, it's almost angering, but also still so surprising. How in the hell does this guy? He, he goes from the first round to the fourth or fifth round in the draft like because that, yeah. of they found out like. The entire time he was at Florida, he was he he failed multiple drug tests, and like to, he wasn't trying to not fail the drug tests, right? So he goes, he drops the fourth round, gets the contract, all that kind of stuff. How does a guy who fails multiple drug tests because there's no repercussions for for doing that or consequence to the action? Your coach leaves Florida and then goes to Ohio State and then is involved in another thing that he like, covered up, like not saying he covered up Hernandez thing, but the stuff of Zach Smith. How does a guy like that, how does none of this fall on Urban Meyer of like, of, of the kind of programs he was running? And then he still gets a job in TV a year after that. Winning pays. That That's is, not, that, that part was That's the sad shocking reality. to me. Winning pays. Let's move on. Like I said, if you haven't watched it, go do so. Really interesting. Pretty quick binge watch. Take three and a half hours of your time, whatever it was. But um, really, really got hooked to that. Get yourself some, point some blue bubble gum, man. <laughs> Let's move on to happier subjects. Fourth and wrong. I thought when you said you were going to get preachy, you're going to be like, I'm, you know what? I'll say it. I'm not pro murder. I'm not. I'm, I'm against <laughs> I'm not, murder. I'm not. I can admit that. I can sit here and admit that. <laughs> the fact that we didn't open with "There's been a murder" was a very big missed opportunity. All right. Fourth and wrong. Um, first question is from Mora Bushel. Who would be great to do the Super Bowl halftime show that hasn't yet? Can be anyone, dead or alive. Hmm. Very tempted to say Michael Jackson hologram, but that probably wouldn't be the best look. Good transition um, from the murder to MJ talk. You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> um, that's that's how we do it here. I, the P, I feel like everybody who's big time has has done it, but what about has Adele? Adele hasn't done it yet. She could just sit it's there and, and just bust out the you know the ridiculous vocals, and instead of it being this incredible spectacle which is ultimately that's what it is and you don't necessarily even hear the person yeah. performing like i saw because i was there at the super bowl that ironically enough aaron hernandez scored a touchdown at when madonna performed that you're year, part was, of the problem yikes um you don't even see the performer at all and you it's it's just it's all about the the lights and whatever's going on in the background so when you're in the stadium at least it's different on tv but yeah why not why not adele adele could do it um you're saying the biggest spectacle in, in the entire world of sports 
You want to have the sad lady that just turned down the lights and, and lay down and get into her feelings? You want her to sing? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I was... Has Pink done it? Oh, come on. She's like... No, she's like... I'm, I don't celebrate her entire, you know, collection of songs at all. She's not, overrated. Like, oh, my God. The fact that you even have a stance on that is crazy. I've just heard from every, every person that has ever talked about going to one of her concerts. I've always heard the same thing. Like, she's the best in-person performance I've ever seen. Um, so, I, I mean, I don't know. And she's still around for like 20 years, so maybe she could do it. What I about Janet uh, Jackson? Can she do it? Oh, she, she did it before. That's right. I, I tell you what, man. The the fact that like last year's was, was it was saved because Big Boy came out in that Cadillac and that coat. But what a missed opportunity that they didn't have like Outkast or like yep. these like generational like t- type like, you know, hip hop and, and artists like that, especially in Atlanta. I, I wish they would do something with with them, honestly, I, I wish they would do something where it wasn't like pop rap, but like, I don't know, something a little bit more fun than the same generic, like, this guy, our top five white performer in the world. What about Elton John? Has he done it? That'd be, I would do, I'd enjoy that. That'd be pretty good. He's still yeah, performing. That, he lives down the street from me. Does he really? Oh, I he feel like we talked about yeah. that. We talked um, about that before. But yeah, I think that would be a good one. I like that. Uh, what is your favorite off-season sporting event to watch, attend, or wish you could attend? The Masters is my number one. Being born in Augusta and living across the river, I know I'm biased. Chad McKee. The off-season events that I attend, I, I go to Magic Games because they're you know nine miles from my place. That's not like my number one off-season sporting event that I would go see. Um, I mean, Cubs games to me, summertime, Wrigley Field. Yeah. Tough to beat it, but... I, the one I wish I could attend right now is, is still the Masters. I, I agree with that. That That's top of the bucket list in terms of non-football off-season things that I need to see. That's not, you know, a Game 7 or something like that. And I think seeing no, the, the National Championship in college basketball would be would be a lot of fun. But now that they're at football stadiums, it's so tough to really get a good yeah. vantage point that I think the Masters is just kind of a, a different breed. We've talked about that a lot before. Yeah, it's still my answer. It, it like it, it gets me angrier and angrier the more I think about it. The fact that I'm 33 and grew up in this state, everyone has ties to the Masters somehow, and I've, I I don't know how I've never been. But I'm I'm just I'll say it. I'm way too white to not have lucked into these tickets at this point. Look at my haircuts, the glasses, the way I wear my shorts. There's pleats on them. I belong at the Masters. Do you, you get the pimento the pimento cheese sandwich? Connor, all I would have I would it would be a field day because it's only like a dollar fifty. I know. I'd I would, love to I would see probably also be asked to leave the Masters. I'd love to see, yeah, well, because you can't bring your phone out there, can you? No, that's that would be a, a, a real issue. Yeah, that would you would suffer big time from that. Just never forget the fact that my parents went three years ago and told me they've had tickets, like, or connection or hookup tickets for, like, a decade and didn't tell me. And Patty Sue just sat down in the middle of one of the walkways on, on a fairway. Proud of you. Um, <laughs> third question, who was your celebrity childhood crush? That's from McKaylin Crabtree. Britney Spears was the first real one I can remember back in the day. When, Shaped head or like... Oh, come on. That's so unfair. The crazy video. Everybody knows what I'm talking about. The crazy video was the first time I realized, whoa. Um, yeah, that, uh, that, that'll change the way that you think about things. But I, I, I'd probably always throw her in that group. And, you know, Jessica Simpson to me, kind of yeah. as you got a little bit older... Thought she was always super, super attractive. Um, In terms of actresses and stuff like that, I wasn't really that crazy about one specifically. Like there wasn't one where I had to go see their movies. It was usually the the performers or somebody like that. Britney Spears though is all time. 
Um, for me, it was Helen Mirren, even since I was a kid. Uh, I know she's like 73. No, I'm kidding. Betty White? Um, Betty White. <laughs> so, I, like, I'm older than you, so like the Britney thing, first off, the, the Slave for You uh, live mm-hmm. performance, that was the one that got me. Yep. Regardless. Um, Topanga, that's like the easy oh, answer. Oh, good one. Good one. But the ones that I really remember the most was Holly Robinson Pete from Hang with Mr. Cooper and Chili from TLC. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Chili so, lived in Atlanta too, didn't she? Still does. Still does. Yeah. Good to know. Um, all right. Last question. What's the worst Valentine's Day gift you've ever given and or received? PG-13 rated, of course. It's from Andrew DiGiacomo. Hold up. Why not just say good to know that Chili lives in Atlanta? <laughs> Why not say that? Wait, what do you mean? You ended when we were talking about just now, like five seconds ago, and you're like, Chili, yeah, she still lives in Atlanta. I said, good to know. Um, I don't know why that that's ever going to resurface in my life ever again. <laughs> <laughs> Things I don't need to know. All right, worst Valentine's Day gift you've ever given slash received. I, in the first, okay, so my, my wife, Lauren, when the first two months that we had been dating was our first Valentine's Day because we started dating in December. And one of the things I got her was socks because she needed new socks. It wasn't the only thing I got her. Yeah. I got her other other things, but it was kind of like, well, why are you getting me socks for Valentine's Day? I have since gotten her socks for Valentine's Day every single year. And she might That's say, good. it's a sentimental thing now at this point. I, I don't just get her socks. You know, we go out for dinner or whatever. Or, you know, we'll get each other like some sort of present, try and keep it under a hundred bucks. But um, that's probably the worst gift though that I've ever given just because it was just something that she needed and, you know, wasn't necessarily. What do you get somebody when you, who's, who you've only been dating for two months? It's really hard. A, a month and a half after Christmas. It's so difficult. It's so difficult. And she she has a birthday right after that. It's that boom, sucks. boom, boom. Yeah. I mean, like, the man, the worst gift like was ever working on Valentine's Day. And it falls on a Friday this year, which I've like already thought some prayers out to anybody in the service industry because that Thanks. was Valentine's Geddon, man. We, we we would run out of steak sauce at Houston's and it was a nightmare. My favorite thing was you'd see guys that would bring in their like side piece oh, and then come in like the next night or even later that night. Like this happened to me once where I served the same guy with two different women the same day. That's and like it was a his wife. episode. It, he, he like, as soon as I went to the table to greet him, she, like, I got their drink order, and she went to the bathroom, and he, like, grabbed my arm and just gave me a $100 bill, and he's like, this doesn't leave the table. And I was like, well, I'm going to get a podcast one day. I'm going to out the blank out of you, bro. Yes. Um, so when I was in my 20s, and I was a giant disaster of a human being, and I, I was just super selfish, and the girl I dated at the time, I dated for, like, four years, Jess, she, uh, I, <laughs> we lived in this house I grew up in Sun Mountain, and the heat stopped working, and... Instead of just calling to get it fixed, I was like, oh, it'll be fine. Like, I'm sure, like, like calling, like, my mom and stuff. I was like, can you guys fix this? Even though they lived in another state. So, in the mornings, it would be freezing cold. And she would like, give a shower, and, like, immediately you're, you're just, like, you know, about to have, like, pneumonia. So, instead of just getting the heat fixed, which turned out was an easy fix, I bought her a towel warmer from, like, whatever the, the Sky Mall magazine thing would be. Or, like... That 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 type of place. It's it was literally. It's all it was. It was just like a, a, a towel warmer. You you plug it in and it just heats up your towels. That is like the most bougie, rich, unnecessary thing ever. And it was also the worst gift ever. And, and she let me know that uh, a lot. It was bad. 
a towel naturally warms you. And I get that there are, we have an electric blanket. It works really well. It's great. It's, it's awesome. But when you're wet, a warm towel, I don't think makes as much of a difference. I no, it, like... there was no part of it that I will defend. It was the worst gift I've ever gotten. It was, How much it was did it like, cost? It was $185. What? Yeah, which I don't know why I thought I, like it cost $60 to get the heat, the heat fixed in the house. I just was a terrible adult, a terrible person, super selfish. It was, and I'm pretty sure the year before that or year after, like I was able to convince her, I was like, Valentine's Day kind of sucks. Like, you know, like I'm just, it's my off day for work. Let's just hang out. And we got pizza and watched the Bama basketball game. It was, I was awful. It was awful. That's do better guys. Do now. better than me. I set the bar low. Let's do our top five moments of 2019. This is something that we wanted to do a couple weeks ago, but we've gotten a little bit busy and LSU has sort of dominated the, the news cycle for us, but something that we want to do to look back on the year that was. Do you want to do your top? We're going to have a lot of crossover here, obviously. We might have the exact same top five. No, um, you go first. I'll go first. All right, I'm going to start at five. Your first press box experience. The Bama-Duke game, seeing how giddy you were, seeing you double, triple up on the ice cream. Fun day all around. Very, <laughs> very, very fun day. Just getting to see kind of what that meant to you and, and getting allowing you to see that world was was a lot of fun. Very, yeah. very enjoyable. Number four, our Charlotte trip to see the SEC Network crew. Hanging out with those dudes all day. We talk about Chizik a lot, but also getting to hang out with the likes of Doring and getting to hang out with Dari Noka and our guy PB. That was just so fun in itself because it's something that we've obviously watched on TV a billion times and getting to actually like kind of be there and interact with those guys and see how they work. Oh, and then to have drinks with them afterwards. All that, ton of fun. Number three, our first time in Athens slash our sweet experience with Candler and his friends. My first time in Athens, not your first time in, a- first time in Athens. I should definitely preface that. But I had never experienced a, a suite for a college game or anything like that before. I had never experienced Athens, getting to go to the tailgate, all that stuff. I realized that day was different for you because it was the day of the Bama LSU game. You might bring that up in a minute. But loved getting to see all, all of the, you know, the pageantry that goes into it and everything. Just had so, so much fun. Very, very enjoyable. Number two, our Louisiana weekend. And I, you're gonna, yeah. this is a cop-out. This is, gonna, this is a cop-out. But there are three things in here that just take the cake for me it, just some of my favorite moments i've ever had professionally hester giving us the tour of the lsu facilities on that friday before the lsu auburn game going on fine bomb later that day and having Mar- having you troll me with the sign all-time yeah. moment um still it's our background on our twitter account go follow at the sds pod on twitter um, and then just the actual game day experience where we got to tailgate with Nick Halby and Sean Larkin and then getting to go to the game with Mickey Sheremy and his and his seats there, just you know, 20 rows up on the 50-yard line. We're like, holy crap, this is pinch-yourself type stuff. Perfect way to experience LSU. Number one is obvious. It's our live show in Atlanta. Seeing all of you come out, seeing the support that we were able to get at the College Football Hall of Fame, getting to have Hester and PB and Tom Hart, those guys come out and join our panel, yeah. getting to interact with you, everybody, stay out till, what do we stay out till, like 3.30 that morning. Well, that just, doesn't need to be discussed. Well, whatever, um, <laughs> neither here nor there, but just a riot itself. Those top five to me, when I think about the fact that that all happened in the last four months, blows me away. It's just yeah. an unbelievable, unbelievable season for us. I'm so grateful that we got to have it. Yeah, agreed. It was a, uh, it's weird, man, because we joked around so much last year about it was like the year of Marler and like all these cool things happened and like this year was by far and away way more fun, way better, 
like the podcast itself, like uh, like all the stuff we get to do, like the the people we get to bring on the. It was just it was a ton of fun. Um, so I put like honorable mention the the dudes that dressed up as me for Halloween. Like, oh, I didn't see. It, wait, what do you mean? I didn't see that. So it, it, and this is just falls under like just the, the the type of personalities that we got to to see that come out. Like now the podcast has got like like you know kind of bigger or whatever, and, and just really getting to like engage and and know like our audience more. It, it's been so much fun. It really has been so much fun. So like there's these dudes. There's one guy that made a, a, a like a Twitter handle of like Chris Marlowe's appendix. Um, oh gosh, somebody had to teach me what square foot math was in the in the Facebook group. Like. It's been fun seeing that community, but the Halloween thing was stood out because it was three dudes in Denmark that listened to the pod. They what? yeah, they listened to like a pod I used to do like way back in the day, and I didn't know they were even still listening to this. They 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 don't I don't think they they have their own podcast. It's not in English. Um, they've they started listening to the podcast because that other podcast ended, and they live in Denmark. They they've never been to an SEC football game. None of it. They listen to it every Holy week. Cow. They're they're awesome, and they sent they sent a picture on Halloween because they didn't have any ideas. So at the last minute, they bought black dry fit polos. Yep, and like a three quarters mesh like trucker hat. Like, I think they wrote like SDS on it. And, like they went as me for Halloween, which was that was just that was pretty cool. It was That's it was pretty funny. fun. Um, outside of like this, uh, this one from the pod, but, like doing the TV stuff this year, like kind of like realizing dreams. Like that was like pretty cool. Speaking to that, some of the interviews we had to do this year, I, I left like the interviews. And I'm emotional anyway, but I was like, like tearing up of like childhood, nine-year-old Chris would just be like, if I told him what was happening now, it, like I, I wouldn't believe it. Like Tony Barnard. Yeah. Yeah. And, and getting to talk to guys. And that honestly, that one, not even as much as Tony Barnhart, because I love Sean Alexander as a, as a fan, but the, the people that I got to watch growing up do this and that I was just like, you know, like their voice, their stories, that's Tony Barnhart for sure. That was like a really cool experience. Like, and then having guys like Mark Stoops on and, and and kind of develop, like developing Mark, some of those relationships. Mark Stoops saying "put your money in this bank" was right. <laughs> that was very very close to making the top five. Stephen Garcia's Urban Meyer story about his recruitment really 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 good. Yeah. That was a, that's an all time moment that we've that we've ever had. And sorry we had to bleep it out, but um, I also I also have an honorable mention. Um, my day with with Moorhead at SEC Media. Yeah, we got to follow him around. Really really cool experience. Never done anything quite like that before. SEC Championship Suite experience. Got to go to a suite for the SEC championship, yeah. even though we were around lobster. Georgia fans and they were getting smashed. Yeah, there's lobster there. Um, again, shout out Candler for making that happen. Meeting Hannah B and Demi was epic. We forget about yeah. that. And that's kind of part of the first press box experience because I know it's the same day. But I feel like that's its own sort of thing. Um, we were geeking out big time. The Peach Bowl itself was a lot of fun, even though the game was a blowout. But just getting to kind of be there, I'd never covered a playoff game in person before. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was great. And then I last thing I had for honorable mention was every Chiswick interaction we've ever had. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I I had, and I probably should, like, this was, like, our our trips in general, like, to, like, to start the year. Um, like, what we got to do at USC – I had that at five, which is, I know you need to go on that, so maybe I should have an honorable mention. But, like, we got through this tailgate um, at, like, at, like, at a cockaboose with uh, Austin Kroll from, I forgot the name of the Southern Charm or whatever. Southern Charm, yeah. But also, like, I got to go home that weekend. We got to watch Bama. And then also, I did, like, a comedy show. My mom saw me do comedy for the first time ever, and I've been doing it for, like, eight years. So that was that was fun, doing stand-up. Um, I, I had a blast, like, seeing family and then getting to watch SC football. So that, that was up there. The stuff in Athens was... 
could have been one of the worst days because it's like the Bama LSU loss and you're in Athens, but it was so much fun. And like, just because of like, honestly, like the trips or the things we had to do with Candler in general, like in Athens, the SC championship, I put those together at four just because that was, that was a different level and stuff. I've never, I don't know if I'll ever get used to that, like watching a game from that experience. Very, very cool. On that level. are just free. They're just, they're all just there. I didn't even realize that sweet, the suite was going to be right behind the end zone right there, too. I was thinking it was going to be a little oh, bit yeah. higher up. At the yeah. championship, it was typical suite, uh, the typical, you know, like suite level area. But mm-hmm. yeah, for, for the Georgia Mizzou game, we were just right behind the goalpost right there, right in yeah. the end zone, basically. Um, and I, so I had that at five, at four, not four. So I had that at five. Four, I had the trip to Charlotte because that was, I, I think that was a long ass day. That was a really long day, but it was cool to like, it's it's been really cool to to hang, talking to Chiswick for one, and and then hanging out with like CD and PB and and Dari and all those guys, and just like really uh, like developing those like friendships with them. You know what I mean? They like, yeah, they feel totally peers. different now than what they did. You know, even this time last year where we didn't really have those relationships with them yet. Maybe we had talked to those guys kind of occasionally, but now getting to talk with them as much as we have, it, it does actually feel like they, they are our buddies. And I mean, they're people that yeah. we, we respect and, you know, we've, we've been fortunate enough to have fun with. It meant a lot that they actually said, look, you know, Dari throughout the idea, just come hang out, spend the day with us. I'm like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Why wouldn't we take an opportunity it, like that? I think too, like for us, like, like we're so used to like on Saturdays, we have to, pump out content where we're telling people something it was right. cool to just take in an experience and like learn from like from Chizik because he knows so much more than us and anyway so i had that um third was the the live event uh you only had that third yeah i had well because the other stuff was was first um i had the live event third it was it was a lot of fun but like as i always do with stuff i like get like like so much anxiety trying to like plan it beforehand it was it was a blast it worked out so well i honestly had more fun going out afterwards than i did at like doing the actual live event like going out and like with all of like like the the people like the pod mod group and and like these listeners and getting to meet them that part was cooler for me than than sitting awkwardly in that chair trying to nurse that that one drink um two for me was the trip to baton rouge that was was all time Mainly really Harris, was. but like that was, I mean, it was, it was so cool to, cause there's like so many layers that weekend where, yeah, you got to go on fine bomb and, and we had that, that happened. We had, we got to go to a game like at the 50 yard line for free. Cause one of our listeners like Mickey Sheremy, you know, and, and now he's become like one of my, my, my friends, like it's just a great dude. And Hester walking us through the locker room and that whole experience getting to talk to Moffitt for like 20 minutes like Moffitt he went out his way just to, such a great part of that trip that's a good point the strength coach yeah. at LSU for sure that whole that whole weekend it um it pop a shot you know we'll talk about it you but dominated like, those people that we got to meet from that that was like so I'm not just trying to be cheesy it was so rewarding to to meet people like because like Nick Halliby like the only reason we struck up conversations is because he recognized me like or and us from the podcast. Holding up like, the sign while I was on Fine Bomb and you were holding up the sign and he's like, Are you Chris Marler? Right. And and like that's just that is just a cool experience and like that's not like me being vain. It's just that that was so cool. And then he then he showed me around while you were on air. He showed me around like where Mike Tiger is and taught me all this different stuff, like the history of LSU. It was just really cool to experience that and then have them go on that run afterwards. It made me appreciate uh them even though they're a rival anyway and last was was the press box stuff because that was again i know i'm emotional the bama duke thing for me like to think about where i was personally like 
two years ago, three years ago, especially like six years ago, 2013, that was one of the coolest experiences. It was a terrible game. Nobody else in the country would be interested in that. I think Brian Greasy was there. You know how I feel about him. But it was one of the coolest. Realize, like, getting to set goals and then meeting them and then exceeding stuff like that, like, realizing your dreams and and getting achieved. It was one of the coolest and most rewarding experiences I've ever had. And by the end of the year, the same thing, where it was like, I thought that that nobody would ever let me in a press box again after that. Like, not because the way I acted, but just in general. You behaved. You behaved. And you you kept your Chick-fil-A sandwich intake to, I think, an appropriate amount. Had he been walking away with 10 sandwiches, he might have gotten some looks. But you, you behaved. You did exactly what you were supposed to do. So to, to book in the season from there and then the Peach Bowl, and and that was just like a really cool part of the Peach Bowl because by the end of the year, like there were people that were sitting next to me or in front of me that I had served at Houston's. You know what I mean? And, and I'm not trying to like pat myself yeah. on the back, but like it's just, it's been cool kind of growing in the this business and, and, and becoming peers of these people instead of just people that used to block me on Twitter. <laughs> There are so many of those interactions that we probably we probably could have gone down that road with a variety of people, but ultimately we didn't. Um, thank you to everybody who has followed along with us in 2019 or beforehand. We're going to have a lot of fun playing in 2020. And we're yeah. still, I, I know I said this last time, but we're still working out kind of what our schedule is going to look like in terms of two podcasts a week, one podcast a week, when it's going to be coming out. Just know that whenever we record, we're going to bring it. And I don't want to necessarily do podcasts where it feels like we're just kind of going through the motions. We're going to bring it every single time. We're going to have a lot of we'll great We'll do interviews. one and make it like this. this yeah, we'll awesome. do one. Make it like this. Hopefully this lasts you throughout the week. We're going to have kind of some different types of interviews hopefully that we're going to do as well and it's going to be great we're going to get you through the offseason i know it's daunting it's kind of the ultimate sunday scariest moment to realize that we don't have football for another seven months but it's going to be okay because uncle chris and connor we're both here we're going to get you through it and we're going to be fine and we're going to be entertained throughout we're, the sec has mike leach and lane kiffin in it now like it's going to be yeah. okay we're going to be we fine have time to talk about all these other different things that we, i i feel like i probably know better than my quarterback rankings true very this very true i'm gonna thrive we, we, we thrived last year we did the office stuff and, and you know shout out to shout out to connor today like i, I like i like the format of what we did today it was good it was fun. It was a lot of fun. Hopefully everybody enjoyed it. Um, make sure if you are not yet, follow us on social media at the SDS pod at Vern Funquist, the Twitter handle that is staying at CJ O'Gara. Um, if you have not given us a five-star review yet, please do so. Please rate, subscribe, review all those fun things. Watch us on Facebook Live. When's the next, next Facebook Live coming? Every Monday at 7.30. During the, oh, right before the Bachelor. I see what you did there. There you go. I see what you did there. All right, um, Marler, Coach O, Matt Luke, anybody else that we have in the building, what do we need to remember? Strap in. We got eight months and we're driving the bus. And also, it might mean too much. Talk to you guys soon.